coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap, how the NSA might be breaking crypto, a new fresh zero-day exploit against Flash, and this time with a twist, and key logging before computers. Then it's a great big batch of your questions, a rock and roundup, and much, much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Hi everyone and welcome to TechSnap. This is episode 236 of Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems network and administration podcast. We stream this episode live on October 15th, 2015. This episode is brought to you by our three fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. I'll tell you more about those great sponsors as this here show goes on. My name is Chris and joining us every single week is our host, the admin, the tech, and the teacher, Mr. Alan Jude. Hey there, Alan. Hey Chris, everybody. Thanks for watching. Hello, sir. I believe you are close to getting on an airplane again, aren't you? Yep. Wow, Alan. the best developer summit. You know, I remember when we first started doing this show, I don't think you traveled much at all. And then... Uh, nope. Yeah. I didn't at all. And I uh, also didn't know what ZFS was. <laughs> we, we started this show so long ago, I didn't know what ZFS was. Wow. That's not going to make me feel old. I don't know if we want to do that. You know what else we didn't know of? We didn't know of names like Edward Snowden, and we really didn't talk about the NSA very much. Yep. But that is our first story this week. Yeah, <laughs> life's too short for crappy software. Nice. You got an emoticon on your shirt, Alan. That's pretty good. Yeah, uh, emoji or whatever. <laughs> so we uh, have a big show play, today. Blame Q5. <laughs> there is, oh geez, there is uh, a new Adobe uh, Zero Day in the wild as of today we're going to discuss mm-hmm. with a really interesting twist on it this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think uh, along with other things, a huge roundup, some great feedback, I want to start here with uh, this uh, story that I saw crop up online. I think you caught it too. How is the NSA breaking so much crypto? And it's a really good look at this, Alan. Yeah, so why don't we so- start here? We've heard from Edward Stone and so on that, you know, they were breaking all these, uh, being able to decrypt people's uh, VPNs and all this stuff. But we're always like, we don't know how. Mm-hmm. Well, some research thinks they might have figured out how. Uh, you know, so there have been rumors for years the NSA can decrypt a significant fraction of encrypted internet traffic. Back in 2012, uh, James Bamford published uh, an article over at Wired about the NSA's data center and quoted anonymous former NSA officials stating that the agency had achieved a computer breakthrough. Uh, or computing breakthrough that gave them the ability to crack current public encryption. That would be uh, a huge Snowden, breakthrough. Yes. Now, uh, the way it's worded suggests that it wasn't a technical person that actually knew the details of how it was done. Mm-hmm. They just knew that somehow they were breaking the encryption. Uh, the Snowden documents also had, had some extraordinary capabilities. Right? They show the NSA has built extensive infrastructure to intercept and decrypt VPN traffic and suggest that the agency can decrypt at least some HTTPS traffic and even SSH connections. Whoa. Uh, however, the documents do not explain how these breakthroughs work, and speculation about possible backdoors or broken algorithms have been rampant in the technical community. Yeah. Uh, but most of the experts were pretty sure they hadn't broken one of the algorithms because there didn't seem to be anything obvious that could be done there. Uh, so yesterday at the Association of Computer Machinery CCS conference, uh, one of the leading security uh, research venues in the world uh, the researcher we're talking about and 12 co-authors presented a paper that they think solves this technical mystery. Really? Uh, imperfect forward secrecy, how Diffie-Hellman fails in practice. Mm. Uh, so this is from the group that did the uh, that discovered Logjam, the uh, thing that would be able to trick your uh, HTTPS connection into falling back to uh, the old like export grade Diffie-Hellman. Yeah. Uh, so they say the key is somewhat ironically the Diffie-Hellman key exchange, which is used in uh, TLS, SSH, and in, on VPNs. Uh, 
an algorithm that we and many others have uh, advocated as a defense against mass surveillance. You know, this is when we came up with the uh, uh, the idea of the you know forward secrecy for encryption, so that right. uh, the idea behind forward secrecy is normally uh, before forward secrecy, the way that things were encrypted meant that if Google was able to go to or sorry, if the NSA was able to go to Google and get a copy of their SSL private key, they could then decrypt all the connections that they might have recorded going back and forth to Google. With forward secrecy, it means that the keys are uh, not reused, they're ephemeral, so that that way it would uh, mm-hmm. be able to to uh, use a different key so that if somebody does manage to uh, get or steal Google's key, they can't decrypt all traffic that they might have uh, recorded that happened previously. Uh, so, you know, experts have been telling us, oh, use Diffie-Hellman to solve this. Uh, but turns out, maybe that's not the right way to do it. Uh, so, Diffie-Hellman is a cornerstone of all, or almost all modern cryptography, uh, especially in VPNs, HTTPS websites, email, SSH, and so on. Uh, the paper that we'll show uh, uh, shows that through a confluence of number theory and bad implementation choices, many real-world users of Diffie-Hellman are likely vulnerable to state-level attackers. Mm. Not everybody, only state-level. So you have to have significant resources, in other words? Yeah, like uh, they're talking needing at least $100 million and maybe as much as a billion dollars to build the machine to do this. All right, not out of the reach for a state agency, though, well, at yes, all. The, the, you know, the NSA's budget is like $11 billion a year. So Do we know about? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they say if a client and server are speaking Diffie-Hellman, they first need to agree upon a large prime number uh, f- with a particular form. Uh, there seems to be no way uh, or no reason why everybody couldn't just use the same prime number. And in fact, many applications tend to use the standardized or hard-coded mm. prime number. Uh, but there uh, was a, a very important detail that got lost in translation between the mathematicians and uh, that wrote the. Diffie-Hellman key exchange, and the practitioners that actually uh, write the code. An adversary can perform a single enormous computation to crack a particular prime number, then easily break any individual connection that uses that prime number. Hmm. Uh, so it's not that you're actually cracking the prime number, but basically you can. Uh, the way Diffie-Hellman works is uh, each side picks a random number, mm-hmm. and then they raise uh, the prime to the power of that random number and send that over to the other side, and then back the other way as well. Hmm. Uh, and then from that, by never actually exchanging their random number in the clear, but by exchanging the math on the two, they're able to figure out what the other side's magic number was and use it to construct encryption. Oh. oh. Uh, so, and the whole idea of this is that it's very hard to, to undo it, to go from the numbers that get passed back to the real uh, random numbers. But if you know what the prime number is going to be, in all of these cases, mm. then you could spend a billion dollars in building machines and spend like a year doing it to actually calculate all the possible inputs and outputs for that particular prime. Uh, so for the most common strength of Diffie-Hellman, which is 1024 bits, it would cost a few hundred million dollars to build a machine based on special purpose hardware like ASICs uh, that would be able to crack that one Diffie-Hellman prime every year. Of course, that means that after a year they could do a second one, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you know, but they say, would it be worth it for an intelligence agency? Since a handful of primes are so widely reused, the payoff in terms of uh, connections that could be decrypted would be enormous. Breaking uh, the single most commonly used 1024-bit prime would allow the NSA to decrypt connections to two-thirds of all VPN connections. Hmm. Uh, doing uh, a different prime that's used uh, primarily in SSH would get about a quarter of all SSH servers in the world. 
Whereas if they, if they break a second 1024-bit prime, that would allow uh, passive eavesdropping on connections to nearly 20% of the top 1 million uh, HTTPS encrypted websites in the world. Huh. That's significant. Yeah. So in other words, a one-time investment in massive computation could make it possible to eavesdrops on trillions of encrypted connections. That seems like a no-brainer for a state agency. Exactly. Uh, based on the evidence we have, we can't prove for certain that the NSA is doing this. However, our uh, proposed Diffie-Hellman break fits the known technical details about the large-scale decryption capabilities better than any of the competing explanations. For instance, uh, the Snowden documents show that the NSA's VPN decryption infrastructure involves intercepting encrypted connections, then passing certain data about that connection to a supercomputer, hmm. uh, which then returns the key to decrypt the connection. So by they capture the VPN connection, they get the the prime uh, the uh, the keys used on either side, which is the random number or the prime number raised to the power of the prime or the prime number raised to the power of the random number. Okay. Uh, one from each side. You just take those two and you feed those and the known prime into the supercomputer. It looks through its giant table of pre-computed values and finds the key and then gives it to you and you mm. can decrypt it. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like a rainbow table for passwords but for Diffie-Hellman primes. Hmm. As you know, it's this speed memory trade-off kind of thing. Uh, the design of the system goes to great lengths to collect particular data that would be necessary for an attack on Diffie-Hellman, but not for alternative explanations like a break in AES or some other symmetric crypto. Uh, while the documents make it clear that the NSA uses other attack techniques like software and hardware implants to break crypto on specific targets, that doesn't explain their ability to do passive eavesdropping on VPNs on a large scale. Uh, hmm. Separately, 8.4% uh, of the Alexa Top 1 million HTTPS domains allow DHE export, which is the 512-bit uh, uh, Diffie-Hellman Prime, mm -hmm. uh, of which 92.3% use one of the two most popular prime numbers. So if they were able to track those, just those two right. prime numbers, they got it at, pretty much. which at 512-bit, which is a lot easier to do, they would be able to decrypt you know, 92% of the 8.4% of the top 1 million sites. Hmm. Uh, after a week-long pre-computation for each of the two uh, top export-grade primes, the 512-bit ones, uh, the researchers were able to quickly break any key exchange that uses them. Uh, so they were actually able to, for about 3,500 individual uh, logs that they calculated from the prime, uh, they could basically, while looking at a connection, feeding in the numbers, in a median time of about 70 seconds, be able to decrypt the connection. Really? That's with 512-bit. Okay. Which, 70 um, seconds with 512-bit. A, a median of 70 seconds. Median, so yeah. means yeah, half, yeah. They could do half of them in under 70 seconds. Right. Some of the, uh, there's a graph uh, in, the, in the paper, but it basically some of them are really fast and some of them would take up to like four minutes or something. Uh, so after... Oh, we just, uh, our calculation suggests that it's possible, uh, plausibly within the NSA's resources to have performed the same number field sieve pre-computations for at least a small number of the 1024-bit Diffie-Hellman groups, especially you know, the most common ones that people use. Uh, this would allow them to break any key exchange made with these groups uh, in close to real time. If true, this would answer one of the major cryptographic questions raised by Edward Snowden's leaks, how is the NSA defeating encryption mm -hmm. for widely used VPNs and, and things of that nature? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so now if you pull up that... Uh, mm -hmm. 
page 10 or whatever? Page 10. Uh, so if the NSA has pre-computed just one DH1024 group, uh, they'd be able to compromise about 37% of HTTPS traffic in the top 1 million sites uh, using the uh, active downgrade attack. Wow. So basically, when combined with logjam, uh, which would trick them into dropping down to 512-bit, uh, then they could do quite a bit. But yeah, so if the NSA was able to um, to compute one of these uh, tables for the primes, uh, they'd be able to get about 200,000 of the top 1 million uh, yeah, sites. About and so yeah. there's about 205,000. Yeah. Um, wow. And if they, so that's 37%. If they were able to come up with just 10 of these groups, the 10 most common ones, that would be 56% of uh, all the, the sites on the top 1 million list. Hmm. Uh, and then if they were, uh, you know, when you apply the same thing to VPNs, the single most popular uh, DH1024 group comprises 66% of all VPN connections. Yikes. So if they just get that one prime, they would be able to decrypt the traffic of more than two-thirds of all of the uh, VPN traffic that goes across the internet. Yeah, I'm starting to think the more you go on, the more they already are. Yeah. <laughs> Because that just uh, seems so obvious and such low-hanging fruit that they would, they would almost be negligent not to go after that. Yeah. Uh, so if they're not doing this, this paper means the NSA will start building that tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, yeah, I mean, do you remember when we talked about the, uh, them prepping for uh, uh, this new supercomputer with um, quantum com- computing capabilities? We talked about it in, like, in August, um, mm-hmm. about them looking to build like the world's most powerful supercomputer ever. You got to wonder what they're going to be doing with that thing. Uh, and then <laughs> for when you look at SSH, about 25% of all the connections they found used the same prime. Yeah. Uh, and so that would, uh, interestingly though, for that one, and uh, actually also for VPNs, except for the people using that most common one, uh, which you know, is 66% of people for VPNs and 25% of people for SSH, after that, if the NSA went from 1 to 10 of the most common ones, it basically wouldn't help them at all. Because there's no prime that's being used by a large number of people. Like there's there's one that's being used by a lot of people, and then everything else people are using basically one they come up with themselves. And so there's not uh, any other low hanging fruit. Whereas for HTTPS, there there are you know a small number of very common ones, but uh, with uh, VPNs and SSH, there seems to only be one really common one, and then everything else is kind of a long tail after that. Mm. And so. Uh, for those, the NSA breaking multiple keys isn't necessarily going to help them that much. Uh, as far as decrypting just random traffic. Now, if they were going after a specific person, they might want to do it. But you know, if it takes them a year to crack one of these uh, prime things, they're probably not going to want to do that for a key that's only used by one place. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Unless they had some extreme reason. Yeah, and and again, if you're going after one, you know, maybe it's a median of a year, so it means you could crack it sooner, but it could take longer. Right. That's a good point. Uh, so looking forward, they say, uh, we performed a scan in which we mimicked the algorithms offered by OpenSSH 6.6.1, which at the time was the newest. Uh, in our scan, 21.8% of servers uh, preferred to use the 1024-bit Oakley Group 2, which mm. is one of the very common um, DH primes. Uh, and 37.4% preferred to use a server-defined group, uh, which means you know one that they came up with themselves. Uh, 10% of server-defined groups uh, were 1024-bit, 
But uh, of those, nearly all provided the Oakley Group 2 rather than a custom group. Uh, so most of the times, if you're not using the standard one, you're using your own, which is uh, usually stronger than 1024-bit and not one of the well-known ones. And so you're in better uh, position. Uh, they have a tool on their website, which we'll talk about in a minute, uh, to check your HTTPS server, oh, but good. they don't have one to check your SSH server. Mm. Uh, but it, the way it sounds is like the most of the ones that are vulnerable are really old SSH servers that are not necessarily set up very well. Hmm. But, uh, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of some of this. Uh, so they have some recommendations on how we can avoid these problems. All right. Uh, the first is to transition to elliptic curve. Uh, Transitioning to uh, elliptic curve Diffie-Hellman, or ECDH, instead of just regular DH, key exchange uh, with uh, appropriate parameters avoids all known feasible crypto, uh, cryptanalytic attacks. Uh, previously, we had kind of not taken the NSA's device to switch to elliptic curve very seriously because there had been all this talk about the NSA having certain curves that they were promoting people use. Yeah, I do recall that. Bad, right? Yeah. Uh, but maybe they were actually being truthful when they said that you should probably switch to elliptic curve. Yeah, I mean, they do seem to issue, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, but, you know, recommendations that do seem to be in the public good. And But the well, problem that, is... That is one of their jobs, right? Yes, they, exactly. They have two jobs. Exactly. One is to break all encryption, and the <laughs> other is to tell the government which encryption to use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they, uh, they're also the, the people behind, uh, well, they contributed to, say, things like SE Linux, right? Which would, in theory, the make the NSA's job harder to compromise a Linux machine. Well, at the same time, it's because the NSA's job is to make the government's Linux machines secure. Right. exactly. It's kind of like one division is making the other division's life harder. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Sounds like government. Uh, next recommendation is to increase the minimum key strengths. Uh, server operators should disable the DHE export and uh, configure all their DHE cipher suites to use primes of at least 2048-bit uh, uh, because currently it's not considered feasible for even the NSA to uh, pre-compute uh, primes for 2048-bit. Hmm. Uh, next thing is obviously avoid fixed prime 1024-bit groups. Uh, you know, For implementations that must continue to s or uh, support 1024-bit, Generate a fresh one rather than using one of the uh, the, the well-known ones. Yeah. And this should mitigate some of the damage caused by the uh, number field civ style pre-computations uh, for the very common fixed groups. And then finally, uh, the last thing we need to do is not deliberately weaken crypto. Right? The downgrade attack logjam on export-grade 512-bit Diffie-Hellman groups in TLS illustrates the fragility of you know, these cryptographic front doors, right? In this case, it wasn't a secret backdoor. It was, you know, something we did on purpose to only yeah. to allow us to have weak encryption. It's yeah. Like, well, it turns out this is bad. We yeah. Well, surprise. Although the key size originally used in DHE export was intended to be traceable only to the NSA or tractable only to the NSA, uh, two decades of algorithmic and computational improvements have significantly lowered the bar to attacks on such key sizes. As we right. saw, right. Uh, the researchers were able to pre-compute in a couple of days such that they could mm -hmm. crack keys in, mm -hmm. in a couple of minutes. Right. Hmm. Uh, for the outcome of this paper, they say, prior to our work, uh, Internet Explorer, Chromium, Firefox, and Opera all accepted 512-bit primes, whereas oh. Safari uh, allowed primes as small as 16 bits, which is just... Why? doesn't make any sense doesn't, at all. No. It, why would they even do that? 
they don't just didn't have a, a lower limit, I guess. Yeah. Uh, as a result of their uh, disclosures to those uh, vendors, uh, Internet Explorer, Firefox, and Chrome are transitioning to a minimum size for the DHE groups. Uh, they accept to 1024-bit. Uh, and OpenSSL and Safari are expected to follow suit soon. Okay. But uh, as of the writing of the paper, they hadn't yet. Yeah, I wonder if Safari is relying on some sort of old OS X library or something. Probably. Yeah. Uh, but... It should have never bit. been that low. No. <laughs> so no. they just basically it means they just didn't check, and I think 16-bit is just the lowest yeah. feasible one. Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, there's more information at weekdh.org, uh, including there's a sysadmin guide there that has all the stuff you need to uh, configure your Apache or Nginx or whatever to uh, strengthen it against this attack, and uh, a tool on their site to test uh, a, a web server make sure that yeah. it's not vulnerable to logjam or this uh, uh, weak primes. That or, would be uh, all primes. linked up in the show notes over jupiterbroadcasting.com. Just look for this episode of TechSnap and uh, scroll down to the first story. And there's the test of server right there. So you can just uh, plug your stuff in there and give it a go. Neat, Alan. And uh, yep. weekdh.org slash sysadmin.html is the direct link if you're too lazy web to go to the show notes. There you have it. Uh, any other thoughts on that story? Yep, that's about it for that. That one. was a fascinating, fascinating paper, and I noticed. I think they said on their site that they also just received like a best paper for CCSC or whatever it was. Yes, they, they, their paper did win the best paper of that conference. Yeah, today. yeah, good for them. Yeah, CCSC 2015 best paper award, which, mm. you know, I mean, this answers questions a lot of us have had ever since we heard about the Edward Snowden leaks. Well, and yeah, we we can't be hundred percent sure this no, is the answer. No, but it but makes a lot of this, sense. This is uh, the explanation that makes the most sense, mm-hmm. and. Uh, most importantly, has the steps we need to to work around it. Right. Yeah, and a way to test your... I mean, it sounds like it's important information regardless, so that's yeah, the other key exactly. thing. Yeah. All right, Alan, well, then I'll take a minute and tell you about IX Systems. Head over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap to check them out. You get a free guide to building the ultimate server or buying the ultimate server for open source software, and you support the show. That landing page does all of that. Isn't that magic? ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Dig around over on the IX Systems website, too, and get a feel for the different systems they have. They have really large enterprise-grade open source-backed storage systems. They have great systems for deploying web infrastructure or something like you might be doing over at Scale Engine or something like we do here, a free NAS Mini. The whole range is there, and they'll custom build something that meets your needs. They have really intelligent people that work there that really, really know their stuff. And in fact, if you've ever wondered what are the people at IX Systems like, you probably have a chance to meet them if you attend pretty much any conference. Uh, they just posted uh, updates from EuroBSDCon and uh, uh, Ohio Linux Fest. They are at both at the same time, mm-hmm. which is a serious feat. Uh, trust me. <laughs> and uh, yep. uh, I think it's really, really cool because you get to go there and pick their brains. And you will walk away impressed, I think, every time. And, it, you know, there's different. they have different types of folks that show up there. Some that are better on the documentation side or some that are better on the hardware side. And sometimes they have rigs there you can look at. Sometimes they don't. It just depends on the conference. But it is really neat to go up and talk to them. And uh, they always are interacting with the community. Now, why do I bring that up? Why do I mention that when you're looking for enterprise-grade products? It's simple. They're tuned in at that level, which means they're following everything happening at that level. A, so you don't have to if you don't want to. But B, that way they're just as connected as an enthusiast because they are enthusiasts and they make the best products. IX Systems has been around since before the dot-com boom, and they know how to make a sustainable business. They know how to deliver great products and back them up with incredible white glove service. So I want you to check out ixsystems.com slash techsnap for any server-grade need you might have. IX Systems, I recommend them over all of the other OEMs out there, and I've tried all of them. Really, all of them, the large server manufacturers, 
for many years, even the ones with big blue letters that claim to be the gold standard in the industry, I have replaced those systems with IX systems, and I have always been happy. And Alan, I uh, I know that I don't know if we got a chance to mention it, but uh, a TechSnap viewer actually wound up with a server from IX systems. I feel like we might have mentioned this about a month ago or so, but right. it was a really but, cool uh, story. Yeah, it's over on IX's blog, mm -hmm. and basically. Um, Two students had entered a, a contest at their school to redesign the school's website, and uh, as part of it, they uh, sent IX an email to get a quote on what you know what a server to run this website would cost. And uh, IX, hearing that you know there's a TechSnap fan in me, <laughs> uh, decided this would be a good chance to uh, to help these guys out, and so they uh, hooked them up and actually sent them a free server. Uh, so and cool. Uh, this made me pretty jealous because the server is better than mine. I'm <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, uh, Alan. I feel you. I feel you. Uh, so basically, to run the little website for this school, yeah. they sent them a quad-core Xeon with 32 gigs of RAM oh. and a pair of one-terabyte drives set up in RAID so that they'd be mirrored. And, you know, they're like, oh, we took it out of the box, and 10 minutes later, we had the web server going because, you know, IX did all the setup for us. Yeah, yeah. Man, that is great, isn't it? Talk about a, talk about a cool experience for students, too. Yeah, that is really cool. And I, uh, I also feel slightly bad for the IT guys at the school because it said that the servers moved to the school's uh, server room. Uh, it's going to be the nicest looking right. and highest right. spec server. Right, in the, the world. students have the best server in the district. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. the IT guys going to be like, how come I don't get nice hardware to play? You know, if those IT guys knew what's up, they'd start buying from IX Systems here exactly. on out. Yeah, and you know what? They should visit ixsystems.com slash techsnap. That way we get a little credit for your visit. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Go check them out. Really, really strong recommendation from both Alan and yep. I. And Love actually, uh, if you check out the second link, I just remembered to add to the show doc. Oh, yeah? Okay. Uh, they have finally posted the oh. webinar that Michael Lucas and I did. Yeah. This is about an hour-long uh, interactive slide presentation thing we did. Uh, why we love ZFS and why you should, too. Yes. Uh, and it's actually really cool. Uh, it's... Uh, we kind of I actually did it with the uh, a modified version of the BSD Now video layout and things. And, nice. Uh, yeah, you should check that out. It's really nice. Very cool. So we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. And a big, big thank you to ixsystems for sponsoring the techsnap program. ixsystems.com slash techsnap. Okay, so I mentioned it towards the top of the show. And it's funny because this is, this, is, this is like, this is what we get. We talked about Flash Zero Days in last week's episode. I, we and totally like, jinxed ourselves. We haven't been any many since yeah, it's we been pretty good. had all those mitigations. Right? Yeah, well, guess what, Alan? We have a new zero-day exploit, and it hits fully patched versions of Adobe Flash. What do we know? Yes. Uh, so, you know, yeah, like I said, just last week we were commenting how quiet things have been, <laughs> and sorry for jinxing it for everyone. All right, guys. Uh, so uh, Adobe has uh, confirmed... Uh, so. The announcement came out, I think, on Tuesday, and, and Adobe was investigating, but it's since actually confirmed uh, that there's a zero-day exploit that affects uh, fully patched versions of Flash, including uh, 19.00207, which actually came out this Tuesday. Jeez. So the one that came out less than two days ago is also vulnerable uh, because Adobe didn't get sent the information on the zero-day until Tuesday. Oh, okay. They, that, All this right. was already the yeah. one coming out. All right. Uh, so they hope to have a fix uh, early next week for us. Uh, so they say the attackers are exploiting a previously unknown vulnerability in fully patched versions of Adobe's Flash Player uh, so they can surreptitiously install malware on end-users' computers. Nice. Uh, however, the caveat that makes this slightly less the world's on fire 
is, so far, the attacks are uh, known to target only government agencies as part of a long-running espionage campaign carried out by a group known as Pondstorm. Uh, researchers from the antivirus vendor Trend Micro said in their blog post, which I have linked here. Oh, okay. Uh, so they say it's not unusual for such zero to exploits to be more widely distributed once the initial uh, element of surprise wanes. Right. Uh, so in general, so these Pondstorm guys found a zero day in Flash, and because they're after the government, they don't tell anybody about it. They they wanted this to stay a secret forever so they could keep using it. But you know, somebody figured out that's how these government computers got infected, and now they've let the cat out of the bag. Uh, and so I'm sure these Pawn Star guys are really upset that their awesome Flash Zero Day is, is uh, going to get fixed now. Hmm. Uh, the important thing for the rest of us right now is nobody else has this except for these uh, advanced persistence threat group. And so it's not actually, you're not going to likely see it on random websites or something. Okay. It's specifically targeted at people that have government information that these guys want. Now next week might be a different story. Right. Uh, so the, the critical security flaw is known to reside in Flash uh, 19.00.185 and 19.00.207 okay. and may affect earlier versions as well, although nobody should be running an earlier version, right? Right. Uh, at this early stage, no other technical details are available. Okay. But yeah, so it says, in the most recent campaign of Pondstorm, several Ministry of Foreign Affairs uh, officers received uh, spear phishing emails. These contain links to sites that supposedly contain information about current events, but in reality, uh, those URLs hosted the Flash exploit. Uh, in this wave of attacks, the emails uh, were about the following topics. Suicide car bomb targets NATO troops convoy in Kabul. Hmm. Syrian troops make gains as Putin defends airstrikes. Uh, Israel launches airstrikes in target, uh, on targets in Gaza. Russia warns of response to reported U.S. nuke buildup in Turkey. And the U.S. military reports 75 U.S. trained rebels return to Syria. So these are in the subject line? Or whatever? That or, or somewhere in the body. Like, that yeah. was what the... Okay. That's the, that's the, the catch email, or whatever. Yeah, that was the, the catch that they were trying to get people mm-hmm. to put. Uh, so the most startling thing here is that we would not expect government employees to get such news via email. <laughs> right? You never and, know. And so I they suppose. really should know better than to fall for emails with that as a subject. You'd have to ask Hillary Clinton, Following a link to... Like... It just seems like that's not how you would expect to get right. this news. Especially confidential news or something like that. Yeah. 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 It, it's just like, this just seems like obvious phishing. How are people falling for that? The only way I can figure is if it comes from somebody you know in the in the government somewhere and maybe they Even would be talking then, about that. Like, I can understand sharing a link to, to what looks like a news story or something, but... How about this? How about governments just turn off attachments? Just disable attachments. Well, this, I don't think these had any attachments. They had a link that went to a website. Oh, okay. That website had the uh, the exploit. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but this, it's, it says, it's worth noting that the URLs that hosted these Flash Zero Day exploits are similar to the URLs seen in the attack that targeted the uh, NATO members and the White House uh, in April of this year mm. uh, because they're from the same group. Or uh, that was Trend Micro's evidence that it was from the same right, group. Right, yeah. Right, yeah. Um, this is. It would be interesting to see if any of these exploit, uh, the exploit kits that you know ring, the regular malware criminal type people manage, uh, to actually manage to pick up the zero day before the patch is released. In which case, that's really bad. Uh, but it seems pretty unlikely at this point uh, because not even nobody seems to know the details of the zero day yet, except for uh, Adobe who got this report about it. Uh, so the attack is currently focused on government targets. And the attackers likely want to keep their zero date for themselves as long as they can. 
uh, right? They're, you know, exploiting the hell out of it right now because everybody, people know about it. So they got to, you know, get what they can with it before the patch comes out. Mm-hmm. Got to move while you can. You know, disable flash or whatever. Yeah. Uh, uh, once a fix is released, I will expect the regular malware criminal author type people to reverse engineer the fix to find the exploit. And then we'll actually see this uh, vulnerability being used by the exploit kits. Uh, so once this patch does come out, make sure you install it because as soon as it's out, they're going. Uh, you know, the bad guys will start diffing it against the last version of Flash. Oh yeah. Figure out what was changed. Oh yeah. And uh, figure out this zero day and start using it against people that haven't bothered to patch yet. Move in for the strike as fast as they can. Yep. And then uh, I have a link here to Krebs who has some additional stuff. Uh, this including what was patched in the Flash new version of Flash that came out on Tuesday, which apparently corrects 13 different flaws. Uh, and then also uh, Adobe Reader was updated with uh, 56 security holes plugged. Oh. Uh, and then uh, Microsoft also released uh, 33 advisories of its own for Patch Tuesday. Including some for the new Microsoft Edge browser. Mm-hmm. And uh, Office and a bunch of other stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Interesting, Alan. So uh, they think these guys are linked to Russia somehow. That's yes. the that's the. Uh, hmm. there but, you go. Uh, as as Ars puts it, you know, the usual caveats about attribution apply. Right. Yeah, and this is like, the political this is a wild season. Yes. Yeah, this would be the political season to make attributions like that. But uh, I bet we'll find out a little more information once the patch is out. Maybe we'll get some additional analysis too. We can follow up on. Yep. That'd be really cool. Uh, it'll be hard to say how much we actually get. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. We don't know, do we? But it, so, sometimes we get, uh, usually it depends who found it. So somebody discovered this and has reported it to Adobe. Once Adobe has the patch out, they will be avail- uh, free to release their, res- their mm-hmm. research on it. Mm-hmm. And depending who it was, the, whether or not they will release research, and if they do, how detailed it will be. Right. Uh, yeah. But hopefully we'll be able to cover exactly what happened yeah. here and, and why Adobe's recent mitigations didn't stop it. Oh, that's another good question, isn't it? Yeah, good point. All right, any other thoughts on that one, sir? I uh, don't. I'll tell you about Ting then. My mobile service provider, Ting, is mobile that makes sense. And you can get a great discount by going to techsnap.ting.com. That's our landing page to support the show, techsnap.ting.com. I love Ting because they have no contracts, no early ter- termination fees. And you could really just stop there. But what I think is really amazing is pay for what you use. So they start with a flat $6 for the line, and then it's just your usage on top of that. Think about that for a second. Think about how much that changes the relationship. Traditionally, in a cell phone carrier relationship, they have all the power. You kind of you kind of milk out of them the best deal you can possibly get. You usually overpay for minutes, overpay for messages and data, so that way you can cover yourself because you got to make sure you're in the right bracket so that way you don't get the overage charges, which are insane. Mm-hmm. And some of them have contracts now. Some of them don't. Some of you are still in contracts. Ting has been doing mobile differently for years now. I've been a customer for two years. No contract, nor the termination fee. I only pay for what I use. I can't tell you. Well, actually, I can. I save about $2,000 in the two years by switching. Over $2,000. Over $2,000 by switching to Ting. And you can find out how much you would save by using that savings calculator. You put your existing usage in there. I love Ting because it's got all the features you would expect, plus a lot more. They have really passionate customer service. They have two networks, CDMA and GSM, so you get to pick which is better for you speed and connectivity-wise. They have amazing tools that give you control, a really good dashboard, and companion apps for Android and iOS. I wish my phone company's website wasn't so lame. Yeah. Uh, the Ting one makes me like, I just want a control panel where I can control yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I was helping a family member with their cell phone plan um, just before the road trip that I left on to make sure all their stuff was all taken care of. 
And it was the most frustrating process trying to get logged into their system. And, and you know, it's such a basic tool. I can't believe other providers don't step up like Ting has here. It is really great. You got to check it out. Also, call them if you're curious about their passionate customer support at one eight five five ting ftw And because Ting rocks so hard, the devices are unlocked. So check this out. You can get the Nexus 5X or the new Nexus 6P and bring it to Ting. Then you get a Google Experience Android device. And we're going to talk about in the roundup, uh, there was just some market analysis done that shows that Nexus devices are by far and above the most secure Android devices out there. We're going to talk about that. So you can get a Nexus device with a Google Experience with no contract, no other termination fee, only pay for what you use, and the device is unlocked. It is such a no-brainer. Plus, the Nexus devices support CDMA or GSM, so you get to easily switch between. You just can, I have done this on my Nexus 5. I, I, have, I have a SIM card, and I have my CDMA SIM card, and I can move between them. And you can pick up a SIM card for ridiculous t- amounts, too. It's like $9 for a SIM card. This is a really great way. In fact, one of the funny things that uh, my co-host Noah does on the Linux Action Show is he just buys them in batches. And then as he starts to run out, he goes and buys some more. And he's got, like, mobile devices that he just throws them into, old devices. You know, like, he'll, he'll have a phone for a week that he needs to use, or he can hand to an employee for a little bit, or make a, uh, just a phone for the truck. Really, really cool. And the cool thing about the Ting Sim is it's three different cutouts in one. The way their thing works is yep. you can pop it out into your different uh, devices. It's really nice. Also, Whatever size your device ends up having. It's nice. Yeah, they recently just started selling the LG G Flex 2, which I think is a really, really great Android phone. Check it out. When you go to techsnap.ting.com, $212. You own the phone outright. No payments. No no leasing. No contract. You just own no it, and then you just put it on there. device balance. Right. Yes, yes. It's really, really cool. They also obviously have uh, the new nice uh, hot uh, Nexus 5 and 6 and the other, like the Samsung S6. What's the S6? difference between a Nexus 6 and a 6P? The, ne- the 6P is the new Nexus 6. They just updated it. It's the, and you right, know. Right, but it, what, what's different than the one I have? Well, all question. the things are better, of course, always. Uh, yeah. So this one's made by Hawaii for, for, Hawaii for, oh. one, for one difference. I think mine's Motorola. Ships with, uh, yeah, ships with um, uh, um, Android M. Has a 12.3 megapixel rear shooter. Um, I think it has a slightly smaller screen. This one's only 5.7. I think they shrunk it a little bit. Yeah, because I think mine's a full six yeah. inches. And yeah. It's, yeah, I like yeah. it. This one, though, has a 3,450 milliamp battery. 128 gigs of RAM? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, it's got no, a, sorry, sorry, 120 no, 120 gigs, gigs of storage, three, gigs of, RAM, three okay. gigs of RAM, and a Snapdragon 810 processor, which is a killer 2 gigahertz octa-core processor. Nuts. That's I nuts. I think because of the smaller screen, it actually has a slightly smaller battery as well. I, I, think, uh, I think that the 5.7 is actually just the right sweet spot. I think 5.7 is really good. And the resolution on that screen, 2560 by 1440. That's so sweet. Yeah, I, I, I actually kind of like the Nexus 5X myself. Um, I think it's a, it's a little bit smaller, for one, and I think I like that a little bit. And uh, I really liked the original Nexus 5. Now, this one only has 2 gigs of RAM as opposed to 3, and it only has a 1.8 gigahertz processor and only a 2700 milliamp battery. But it still has a 12 megapixel rear shooter, which is nice. So, I don't know. I'm, I, next time I'm in the market, these might be one of the phones I get. And you can get them right now from Ting. I think you just uh, go over there, check them out, techsnap.ting.com, and order them directly, or grab a SIM card, or maybe even consider that LG Flex 2, which is also a really great phone, and has a slight curve to it. It also has the octa-core processor, 2 gigabytes of RAM, and a 3,000 milliamp battery, and a 13 megapixel rear shooter. So, it's a really nice-looking phone. techsnap.ting.com. Go see how mobile can be done differently. See how you can take the power of the relationship in the carrier. See how what a difference that feels to you. It is hard to describe. In fact, I think as I'm two years into it, I've kind of maybe lost touch with it a little bit. 
how empowering it felt to own my phone like I would own my laptop, to have no contract, to only pay for what I use and have a great control panel where I can activate devices, remove devices, transfer devices, pause devices, all of that in seconds without having to call anybody. It really felt like mobile done differently. And I invite you to check it out. TechSnap.ting.com. It's really cool. TechSnap.ting. Every time I have to phone my telephone company, I wish that Ting would hurry up and come to Canada. I know. I know. And now, so how you feel about their cellular service, that's how I feel about their fiber service because they're rolling out Mm -hmm. fiber in certain places. I'm like, please come to Washington. Please come to Washington. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, Alan, talking... They're kind of in the other Washington, though. Yeah, I know. It's okay. It may be over time. Um, so we were talking about the Russians, and uh, this next story takes us back into a time really before computers were at everybody's desk. Heart of the Cold War, if I'm not mistaken. What are yes, we talking 1970s. about, Alan? 1970s. Nice, nice. Uh, so uh, keyloggers before there were computers. Such a thing existed, uh, Alan? Yes, how the Soviets used IBM Selectric keyloggers to spy on U.S. diplomats with their typewriter. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> uh, a national agency, a national security agency memo that recently surfaced uh, a few years ago, but uh, doesn't seem to have got wide coverage. So Ars dug it up and decided to write about it. Hmm. Uh, published details uh, about uh, analysis of what they're very possibly the world's first keylogger. Right. A 1970s bug that Soviet-era spies implanted into U.S. diplomats' IBM Selectric typewriters. They put a bug uh, in to there. Monitor, uh, yeah, to monitor uh, classified letters and memos. Hmm. So they so could maybe, uh, they would read the memos as they're being, or they would get the memos as they're typing them out, then they would, yeah. oh, that's funny, Alan. Yeah, so basically it would sit in there and, and figure out what's being typed. Although, because it monitored the way, um, the way these typewriters worked, they had a, a little like a ball deal with all the, the letters on it and yeah. it would spin and whack yeah. the paper. Yeah. Um, but when you pressed space or tab, the, it didn't use the ball because it just moved the, it moved it, the right. paper over, but it didn't actually use the ball. Yeah. Um, so the way the Soviets spied on this, they couldn't f- tell where you had pressed space. <laughs> so they would have to kind of like interpret the strings of letters. <laughs> also, backspace. <laughs> uh, wouldn't get caught because that just moves it back one, and then you'd, like the person with the typewriter would have to like manually white out the letter. Yeah, some of the fancier over. ones did get some white out later on, but yeah, not yeah. probably back in the seventies, probably not. Right. Um, so you know you'd have to interpret through typos and and uh, still though, have to figure out where the spaces are. But in general, I, you've got a bunch. Yeah, of that's not a bad source of info, I'd imagine. Yeah. So uh, these electromechanical implants were nothing short of an engineering marvel. Uh, the highly miniaturized series of circuits were stuffed into a metal bar that ran the length of the typewriter, making them invisible to the naked eye. The implant, which uh, could only be seen using x-ray equipment, recorded the precise location of the little ball the selectric typewriters used to imprint a character on paper. Uh, with the exception of spaces, tabs, uh, the hyphen was at the home position, so they, it didn't spin, so it couldn't tell that that's what happened. <laughs> Uh, and backspace, the tiny devices had the ability to record every key press and transmit it back to Soviet spies in real time. Love it. Uh, the Soviet implants were discovered through the painstaking analysis of more than 10 tons worth of equipment that was taken from U.S. embassies and consulates and shipped back to the U.S. Uh, the implants were ultimately found in 16 different typewriters used between 1976 and 1984 hmm. at U.S. embassies in Moscow and the U.S. consulate in Leningrad. So they had uh, easy access to those ones probably. Uh, well, it seems that the implants might have actually been put in in the U.S. before the typewriters were shipped to oh, Russia. Oh, really? Oh, really? Uh, <laughs> by by Soviet spies on this side. Yeah, right? Yeah, right? I guess so. Because, you know, the, 
obviously the Russians are, couldn't very easily just go into the U.S. embassy. You know. Yeah, but it seems like breaking into an embassy would be easier than getting it installed over in the U.S. But I suppose Not maybe you could just pay someone in the U.S. To yeah, do and it. if the man, you know, who knows what the manufacturing floor is like? Maybe exactly. it's easy to get access just walk to that. In. Yeah, and then I guess the only other tricky thing is you'd have to know where those typewriters are going to know which ones to bug. But yeah. they're, you know, the NSA figures that out for Cisco routers, so I'm sure they could have yeah. figured it out for that. Exactly. Uh, the bugs went undetected for uh, the entire eight-year span and only came to light following a tip from a U.S. ally whose own embassy had been targeted by a similar eavesdropping operation. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, that figures out with somebody out there. I'm guessing the British or somebody. Yeah, yeah. Canadians. Mm -hmm. uh, despite the ambiguities in knowing what characters were actually being typed and, you know, the spaces and so on, the typewriter attack against the U.S. was a lucrative source of information for the Soviets. I bet. An NSA document, which is uh, declassified several years ago, concluded, is difficult to quantify the damage to the U.S. from this exploit because it went on for eight years. Right? It must uh, just have to operate sometimes under the assumption that information must be compromised because you look back exactly. at this kind of stuff and you're like, oh, geez, everything we typed yep. over there. Yeah. It's like, how much different would things have gone if that hadn't been the case, you know? possible it could have been much worse right because at least this, when you know what the other guys are thinking you you don't necessarily assume it's the worst any bad things about what they're thinking yeah. right uh so there's i have a link here also to the uh the documents from the nsa they have these under their uh, cryptologic heritage section uh yes learning from the enemy the gunman project wow uh, which came out in 2012 uh ars is uh, reporting the document because it doesn't appear to have been uh you know cover very much, but it came up on Bruce Schneier's blog earlier this week and had uh, quite a lively conversation about it. Oh, really? So uh, that's that's how ours uh, tipped onto this thing that's ah. been in, it was declassified in 2012, but, you know, it didn't really sound exciting. You know, it got buried, it just, the NSA just dropped a bunch of old documents on the website, right? Uh, but in this particular case, this is actually interesting insight into how, you know, the evolution of spying and key logging and so on. Mm-hmm. Plus, everybody loves a good Russian hacking story. Yep. So when the uh, implants were first reported, one bugging expert uh, cited in Discover magazine uh, speculated it worked by measuring the minute differences in the time it took for each character to be imprinted by waiting for the ball to spin to the right spot. Clever. Uh, this theory was based on observation that the, uh, the time this electric ball took to complete a rotation was different for each letter. Um, a low-tech listening device planted in the room uh, would then transmit the sound of the... Typing selectric on a Soviet-operated computer that would uh, reconstruct the series of key presses, but it turns out that's not how it worked. In fact, the implant was far more advanced and worked by measuring the movement of the bail, which is the the term the analysts used for the mechanical arms that controlled the pitch and rotation of the ball. I uh, say, so in reality, the movement of the bail determined which character was being typed because each character had a unique binary movement corresponding to the bail, right? The, series of turns you had to do to get to that letter before you hit, whack it against the paper. Uh, the magnetic energy picked up by the sensors in the bar, uh, which is the listening device, uh, was converted into a digital electrical signal. Uh, the signal was compressed into a four-bit frequency select word. Uh, so they, because there was only so many possible letters, they just condensed it down. Yeah. Uh, the bug was able to store up to eight of these four-bit characters and then when the buffer was full, a transmitter in the bar sent the information out to Soviet sensors. So this is how they managed to... It's harder to detect because it would be these bursts every eight letters instead of... Um, oh, right. 
instead, uh, of, instead like of a, a constant stream. Right, yeah, exactly. And yeah. also, it made it easier on the battery in the transmitter device because it didn't have to transmit all the time. It had a transmitter built into it, of course, because they have to get the yeah. information. They can't come to the device. Yeah, and the, the storage was a big problem back then. Yeah. So they could only store uh, eight letters at a time. <laughs> so that wouldn't make a very good keylogger. So I mean, even with that limitation, it. this is technically very impressive. I mean, oh, it very, very impressive. Maybe, did they, were they powering it off of the typewriter's power source too then, I guess? Oh, we're about to get to that. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, um, when the buffer was full, the transmitter sent the information out to the Soviet sensors. Uh, there was some ambiguity in determining which character was being typed. The NSA analysts, using the laws of probability, were able to figure out how the Soviets probably recovered the text. You know, uh, some of it was just looking at it, and you know, you, words can stand out. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've, we, you know, there's that study at, I forget what university where you know, it, as long as the first and last letter of every word are right, you can read a whole sentence that's just full of typos and and letters out of order. And I so have on. tried that; it works. Mm-hmm. Say other factors which made it difficult to recover text include the following: the implants could not detect characters that were typed without the ball moving, like the space and so on, uh, or the hyphen. Uh, since the ball did not move or tilt when the typist pressed the hyphen because it's located at the home position. Um, the implants were also remarkable for the number of upgrades they received. You know, far from being a static device uh, that was built once and then left to do its jobs, the bugs were continuously refined. Basically, every time they built one, they built it better. Uh, there were five wow. different generations of the bug. Uh, three, used, uh, three types of units operated using uh, DC power, and contained something like eight, nine, or ten batteries. Wow. Uh, I'm guessing like the little kind of like coin cell battery type things, or button cell batteries. Um, the other two types operated from AC power, because uh, these were electric typewriters right. that you plugged into the wall. Yeah. So uh, if you could somehow get the power source from the, type, from the typewriter. Yeah. And those ones, actually, the transmitter could stay on all the time, and so it had a beacon to indicate when the typewriter was turned on or off. So the Soviets listening to these signals across from across the street or whatever would be able to tell when the typewriter got switched on, and then the, that would like alert somebody. Would sit there and watch as the person. So they are they are quite literally watching in real time. In real time, yeah. Wow, uh, this is amazing for the seventies. Yeah, uh, some of the units also had a modified on-off switch with a transformer, uh, which would allow them to um, stay on for a little bit after it got turned off. Uh, while others had a special uh, coaxial screw with a spring and a lug, this modified switch sent power to the implant. Uh, since the battery powered machines had their own internal power source, and the modified switch was not necessary for those ones. Mm. Uh, the special coaxial screw with a spring and lug connected to the implant was uh, uh, to the typewriter linkage, and this linkage was used as an antenna to transmit the information mm. as it was being typed. Hmm. So they even made a version where they could pick it up from further away by having an antenna. Hmm. I think it's I think it's really smart too that they put a little uh, capacitor or whatever in there to hold some power so it could finish yep. transmitting when they flip the switch on the uh, typewriter. That way they yeah, don't miss a done. couple characters. Right, because it was uh, <laughs> it only transmitted when uh, the buffer got full to do this burst, and so you could miss up to the last seven characters. Right, and so yeah, then they would just like flush the buffer when uh, the power went out. Wow. They say uh, later battery-powered implants had a test point underneath uh, an end screw. Uh, by removing the screw and inserting a probe, an individual could easily read the battery voltage to see if the batteries were still active or if the battery needed to be changed. Yeah, because they need to do some maintenance or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it seems maybe the Soviets had somebody inside the embassy to service these things. Yeah, possibly. Uh, or the, you mm-hmm. know, they maybe wanted to leave themselves the option that they could get in. 
Hmm. Project Gunman, is that what it was? Uh, Project Gunman was the NSA's... Oh, they're looking into it. ...version of figuring out what the hell right. was happening. Right, okay. Uh, the devices could also be turned off to avoid detections when the Soviets' new inspection teams were in close proximity. Uh, newer devices operated by the U.S. may have had uh, the ability to detect the implants, but even uh, then, an element of luck would have been required since the infected typewriter would have to be turned on, uh, and in most cases, actually, somebody would have to be typing on it for during the sweep, right? Right. So they go in and look for uh, spurious radio signals, and there wouldn't be any at that time because nobody was typing. Yeah, because, well, I'm a step away from my desk. You can scan my desk. I yep. All right, okay, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, That's perfect, the, really. So, so the typewriter would have to be on, the bug would have to be on, uh, and the analyzer would have to be tuned to the right frequency. And then to lower this risk, the Soviet spies deliberately designed the devices to use the same frequency band as local television stations. And so, it, you know, when you saw the signal at that frequency, you wouldn't necessarily think of any, that it was anything. Right, but I wonder if that meant they had to be closer because of interference. I wonder if that meant that they yes, didn't have as much but, of a range. Uh, you know... Um, the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, there was always talk about that this old church across the road from it that was just like festooned with antennas and so on. Really? Yeah. That's totally where it was, huh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, so I, I thought this was definitely an interesting example of how espionage works and how keyloggers happen and, and you know, the fact that this is so much before computers just makes it that much more interesting. Yeah, and it also makes you realize, like, in the in the era of cyber hacking, uh, in some ways, it's a lot easier for them now than it used to be because... Well, yeah, <laughs> like, who's going to notice that on your uh, the USB end of your keyboard, if you just slipped, like, I don't you've seen how so, small some of those, like, USB dongles are for, oh, like, yeah. the tiny yeah. uh, flash drives or wireless. If you just stuck something like that that had that was, like, just transparently slipped on a USB cable... And then plug that in, and then you'd be able to see everything typed on the keyboard. Hmm. You like you wouldn't even notice that. Even if you look closely, you probably yeah, wouldn't notice yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> the first keylogger. That's got to be it, right? Well, unless the U.S. had one beforehand, but uh, uh, I like too that the it, so the NSA had to create up like uh, y they had to use like a lot of different simulations and the law of probability to figure out what they might have been able to get. Like the NSA had to reconstruct. They must have had to use a device like this and type on it and then receive the output and then try to figure out how they assembled the sentences. And, you know, like that, that process of breaking this down, could you imagine being one of the researchers on this and going like, oh, shit, this, is must, this must have been what they did. Oh, man, they've been doing this for years. Like that, that revelation as you're working on it must have been yep. really something. Um, and it got very minimal press coverage. I was looking, I was looking at... Um, the write-up, and uh, it looks like it got very, very little. Like one, one source. I was reading the NSA's paper. One source kind of, sort of got it, and they called it key trapper hardware. Key trapper, not key logger, but key trapper, which I thought was kind of quaint, and shows you how ahead of the times it was. Amazing technical achievements too, Alan. And it ran to what'd you say, 1984? Yeah, 76 to 84. Huh. Yep. Very cool. Any other thoughts on that one? I uh, know, but I thought that, that was really cool. Yeah, the uh, check out the uh, paper, which is linked in the show notes. It's pretty nice. I'll tell you about something else pretty nice. Digital Ocean, sponsor of the TechSnap program. And guess what? We got a promo code for you, SnapOcean. Give you a $10 credit over at DigitalOcean. SnapOcean, one word, lowercase. Now, DigitalOcean, you don't know about them? That's crazy. Let me tell you about DigitalOcean. They're a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way for you to spin up your own server in the cloud. You can get started in under 55 seconds, so it's going to save you time. They're not going to waste your time. And pricing plans start at only $5 a month. 
$5 a month for 512 megabytes of RAM, 20 gigabyte SSDs, because they're all SSDs, one CPU, and a terabyte of transfer. They've got data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Germany, and a brand new one in Toronto. Toronto. But what I really, really love about DigitalOcean, I mean, really appreciate too, is their interface. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Finally. I wish all things have evolved as well as DigitalOcean's interface has. Mm -hmm. All things in the computer industry just sometimes, uh, there is crap that I've worked with for the same. I'm not trying to bash Windows, but I swear, when I start working on Windows, it feels like some things have never changed. When I'm setting up a Windows server, some things have never changed. Virtualization was like this. When I first started working with virtualization, it was with Citrix systems and VMware. And man, were those interfaces horrible, atrocious, and very time-consuming. Not DigitalOcean. You're going to bang through the UI super quick. It's really well-designed. Lots of options. You can one-click deploy applications. You can choose your distro, or you can choose FreeBSD. Very intuitive. And you can replicate the functionality with their awesome API. And there's a lot of really good applications and scripts and plugins that are already written to take advantage of that API, which you can modify or just take whole cloth and use them or snap into your own system. They have a really great system for this. Also, check out their community page. They have a tutorial up right now about adding log stash filters to improve centralized logging. And uh, producer Matt from Unfilter was just asking me about this. And this is my recommendation right here. Logstash is a powerful tool for centralizing and analyzing logs. So if you guys have been wondering how to pull that off, this DigitalOcean tutorial will work for uh, anybody. You don't have to be a DigitalOcean customer. That's what I love about DigitalOcean, too, is these are really done write-ups, well, well done write-ups. Look at that. And this yeah, is setting I, up for I, Nginx right here? Right. I forget if it was on TechSnap or BSD now, but we covered a thing called Elk, where the L in it is Logstash. Mm. But it's mm. uh, like Elasticsearch, Logstash, and something else put together. That's cool. To make uh, really cool stuff. That's really cool. So they have, so they have this write-up here. Uh, they say it's possible to collect and parse logs of pretty much any type. Try and write your own filters and patterns for log files. Uh, and they show you, they give you some great examples on like how to do a filter for Apache or a, uh, uh, a filter for Nginx. This is really useful information because they pay their writers and they have full-time staff editing these write-ups. Mm -hmm. Go check out DigitalOcean. Try them out. $10 credit. Snap Ocean when you check out. No credit card required. You can apply that to your account, get a $10 credit and run it. I've got many systems up there performing many functions and I think you'll see once you deploy a system and all these are great for development and testing it's also great for learning and just setting up some infrastructure for yourself on really fast machines that you have full control over digitalocean.com use the promo code snapocean and a big thank you to digitalocean for sponsoring the TechSnap program Mr. Jude I believe that concludes our news segment for the week uh, should we give a, a plug in here for episode 111 of the BSD Now program Yes. Xenocratic Oath, did I get that right? Zeno? Yes. Xenocratic. Uh, so uh, Xenocara is the uh, like Latin name for the pufferfish. That's oh. the logo for yes. uh, OpenBSD. Yeah. And this episode, our interview is actually about uh, using OpenBSD in healthcare to replace you know, Windows XP. Mm. And uh, on the, this one's actually uh, the company that he works for does the uh, insurance side of it. But processing and storing all the claims and all that stuff and, and doing it securely with OpenBSD. That's cool. Episode 111. Mm -hmm. This is about the midway point in the TechSnap program, so you can go download the HD version of that, get more Alan Jude in your face after this show wraps up, and be good to go. Check it out. BSD Now, episode 111. But with the news all done, that means it's time for the TechSnap feedback. Thanks for sending your emails to techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or popping that contact link at the top of the JB website, or even better, 
starting to thread in our subreddit for techsnap.reddit.com. Now, our first email this week comes in, and it's a networking question. In fact, we're going to do two networking questions right off the top. It comes from yep. Josh, and he's asking about uh, two gigabit direct connections between boxes. He says, hey, Alan and Chris, a question popped into my head that I think Alan might be able to help with. In my home, I have a FreeBSD 10.1 web server and a free NAS box each with four Intel NICs, two from their motherboards and two from their add-on cards. I have a direct no-switch connection using one of the Ethernet ports between the servers. This works fine. My web server can read and write at near line speeds to a few NFS shares on the free NAS box. He also has ZFS sync disabled on these data sets. My question is, could I double up these connections, still working on with no switch, uh, and use one of the lag protocols to get two gigabits or at least failover? I'm thinking round robin on both sides would work, but would probably cause a lot of unordered packets. Another idea is to set up a separate IPs and access different NFS shares on different IPs, but this wouldn't have any failover to it. To follow up that question, I was thinking of using one port from the motherboard and one from the add-on cards, each to allow for complete loss of the other card, of the other add-on card. But is there any benefit from using lag with ports from the same card? Would be interested to hear your thoughts. Thanks, Josh. Right, so... Uh, lag with RAM Robin will let you get the full two gigabits. Basically, it'll just fire every other packet out of every other port and just saturate both ports. Um, and the packets being out of order won't matter so much on the other end. It'll be fine. Um, and so that will basically... Uh, the problem is that doesn't work when you have a switch because you fire the packets out of both ports and the switch gets them and then tries to send them all to one port oh, because okay. that's the one with the MAC address. Hmm. Uh, and so because you're not using a switch, yeah, just uh, configuring a lag with round robin will let you do that. Um, and if you configure a lag like that and one of the two NIC goes away, it'll just uh, route all the connections over the existing one. Okay. So uh, your other idea of using two separate IP addresses, that can work as well. Um, Sounds more manual, though, because you have yeah. to... Well, if you, use a, if you make a lag of the two NICs, uh -huh. but then use the separate IP addresses on mm -hmm. them, mm. Um, then hopefully they will hash out to go over the two separate NICs. Uh, but if one of the two NICs fails, then it'll combine back to the same one. So you might have to fiddle with exactly what IPs you use to cause the hashing to cause them to be on different NICs. Uh, and that way, that might still work through a switch, whereas Round Robin won't. Although, uh, for Round Robin, I've cheated and used um, uh, VLAN tagging to cheat and actually Ooh. keep the flows separate until they get to the other side and then recombine them. Hmm. Uh, but that's a more complicated setup. Once I play with it some more and actually am sure that it works, I will write up something about it. Okay. Uh, but yeah, so you use a lag uh, with Round Robin with the two NICs that are back-to-back, -back, and uh, you should be able to get the whole two gigabits. There you go. Speaking of... Uh, land, it works fast. Speaking and, of uh, VLANs. I, I would, well, mm. before we get there, mm -hmm. uh, I would say that, yes, there is some advantage to doing the lag of one from uh, the motherboard and one from the onboard, or the uh, expansion card NIC. Mm -hmm. Although, if you want the best speed, the two motherboard ones might actually be slightly... Uh, those two put together might give you slightly better performance in the add-on cards because they're closer to the CPU. There you go. But with only being a gigabit, you should probably be able to max them out either way. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, there might be some advantage. Uh, the advantage to using two from the same card is obviously just combining the bandwidth. Yeah, that's fun. All right, so Jordan writes in with VLAN question. He says, hey, mm -hmm. Chris and Alan, I'm a software engineer, but have an interest in networking, but more as a hobby. I was hoping you could cover some VLAN basics. I understand how they work on a basic level, but I have a hard time grasping when and where to use them, particularly in a home network setting. I could see a home server being a separate VLAN to protect it from the outside world, but what if it needs updates? 
As soon as you punch a hole from one VLAN to another, isn't it just as exposed? Hope you can clear up my confusion. Big fan of Lust. Last, love, quota radio, unfilter, and of course, TechSnap. Uh, so this basically comes down to, when you create a VLAN, it's basically creating a separate LAN. Uh, usually the only thing that would share between these is the router, and then you'd have rules on the router that decide whether certain machines... So, for example, at my house, every all the machines that are upstairs in, in my home are on one VLAN, and they can go to the router and go to the internet, but they can't talk to all the machines in my basement, which is our office. And then those, again, are isolated from the DMZ, which is where all the servers that are exposed directly to the internet and have actual readable IP addresses are. Um, and so, yeah, if you want to keep, uh, for example, if you set up a, a separate VLAN for, say, a public Wi-Fi uh, that you maybe just give to random people that come over to your house to let them get on the internet, uh, you would want that as one VLAN in your, you know, your home file server with your your private files on it on a separate VLAN so they can't talk to each other. Yeah. Uh, but just putting it on a separate VLAN doesn't necessarily mean it can't use the internet. You just have to, uh, it has to have a router uh, or shared router to actually have a route to the internet. Yeah. And uh, as an, another example, you know, I've, I've been noticing um, a lot more devices these days are being set up by apps on phones. And mm -hmm. in order to facilitate the phone app discovering the device, be it like a Hughes light controller or a door opening device or whatever it might be, they're doing like a multi-packet broadcast. They're just broadcasting like their name and some sort of DNS thing. And like they're just constantly spamming the network. Um, and the reason why that matters to me is not really how much data it uses, but more so what happens is people come over to the studio and they, we have two different Wi-Fi networks. And if they get on the Wi-Fi networks on the studio LAN, now they're seeing all our devices on their apps, on their phones, right? They're just, their phones are picking up everything. They can take over the Hue lights. They can take over the TV. They can, all this stuff, my, my computer's remote system, uh, all of it, or every, every Mac we have that, well, just a couple Macs, but the Macs that have VNC turned on, they automatically see the VNC server. The Macs are broadcasting stuff all the time about the shares that they have and all of this stuff. Um, and like if you get an Apple TV or a Roku, it's also broadcasting on the network, so stuff can find it. And it's really nice when you have guests come over just for them not to see all that stuff. And as people, more and more people have smartphones, they're more inclined to just sort of dork around and launch apps and see what happens. When I was on the road trip, that happened here. It's mm. not a big deal, but it happened here. And, you know, it's, it's something to think about. If you, could, if you could isolate that stuff out and keep it on a private VLAN, then you don't have to yep. worry about people messing with your stuff. But as, at the same time, you need somehow to be able to access it from the phone. Yeah, right. You, well, you have to put your phone on that Wi-Fi yeah. that's in that. But you see, the thing is, is I think this is going to become a much bigger problem because I think there's going to be a lot more stupid little devices connected to IP yeah. networks over the next and, few years. And that's why it'll be important to have a Wi-Fi device that can do multiple VLANs or multiple yeah. SSIDs. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that, you know, you have, you have one SSID that's all for that, you know, your smart house stuff, and it has a password that only Chris needs. Yeah. So, uh, and then separately, you have a guest Wi-Fi. So is there anything else we want to cover on the basics of VLAN for him? Because we've been talking about uh, no, in previous they're, episodes a bit. They're, they're kind of hard to set up, so if you don't need it, you might be better off just not. But, it's true. Uh, you don't have to have it. Yeah, but uh, the idea is that you isolate the machines. Basically, it's as if you had completely separate switches. right? You have one switch over here that has a bunch of computers on it, and then it goes into the router. And another switch over here with a bunch of machines, and then it goes into the router. Uh, not in the switch ports of the router, but separately. And then the router knows to keep them secret, uh, separate with a firewall. It maybe has some rules that allows, you know, my machine at my desk here upstairs does have access to the office file server so I can copy files back and forth. Yeah. But it's the only machine. You know, the, the, the machine in the living room can't see the file server. 
No, they can't see the work file server. I can see the home file server because that's where the, the videos that it plays are. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. So let's see if we can help Jeremy here. He has a problem with run out of memory. He's using uh, PHP FPM and he wants some tweaking advice. He says, thanks to TechSnap, I've been working to move my projects away from Apache with mod PHP to Nginx with fast CGI and PHP FPM at least wherever possible. However, I've, la I've ran into an issue, and I'm hoping for Alan's opinions. I keep running out of RAM. The RAM would fill up quickly, then the SSD swap partition would be depleted, and then bad things start happening, like the kernel kills processes. Um, right. And so he says he's tried uh, VMs with half a gig, a gig, and even two gigs of RAM. Yeah. So the biggest thing is that it, and I he don't wasn't know how this he's problem tuning with, this. He wasn't having this problem, he says, with uh, mod, PHP, and Apache. Right. Well, because uh, the defaults in Apache are more conservative and doesn't run as many instances. Uh-huh. And so he's uh, wondering, he's got a couple different ways. You know, with PHP FPM, he could leave it running where it'll allocate 30 megabytes for each Nginx request and then waits for the next Nginx request, and it just keeps that 30 megabytes in use while it's waiting for the next request. Or well, so Apache does the same thing. Like, the PHP gets yep. loaded up as part of the worker. The difference is that the number of workers is probably lower uh, and tuned differently. So PHP FPM has a number of modes. Uh, the default is, I think, anyway, is dynamic, which is the Apache-like one, which basically you set a minimum number of instances to keep running. So Four you know, or five, whatever. Yeah, uh, depending on what you're used to, yeah. that's some low number. 100. Then or... it has a maximum. And so basically, if all the ones that are running are busy, it'll start spinning up more and more uh, until it hits that maximum. Or in your case, it's running out of RAM before it can do that. Uh, and so you, your maximum is obviously too high uh, for the amount of RAM you have. Um, then it has static, which is there are a fixed number and they're just always running. And um, there's that. Or there's on-demand. With on-demand, it keeps zero running and just starts them up as requests come in. Uh, this one isn't necessarily so much use in the general case, but if you have, a, if you have multiple PHP FPM pools, like if you're running one, uh, a separate pool for each different app, then on-demand would mean that you don't keep them all running all the time. You just spool one up to answer a request and then shut it down. Mm -hmm. So if you have one for like each different app, then on-demand probably makes a lot of sense. Otherwise, dynamic is probably best. You just want to tune those numbers down probably okay. Okay. Uh, for your load. Hmm. You know, you, you, uh, a minimum of like two or three and a max of some much lower number than whatever you're using. He says he's currently got it set to 10. Uh, then... But yeah, so you know, if each instance is 30 megabytes, then yes, running 10 of them will take 300 megabytes of RAM. Uh, and then separately, he says he's got the opcode cache, which could be up to, you know, it's set to 128 megs. Now, the opcode cache is shared between all the running processes. So that'll only be 128 by itself and then separate from the 30 megabytes for each one. Um, and depending on, the, you know, that 30 megabytes might be, not be, be for each one each either. You know, the uh, modules are loaded in, in shared memory, so mm -hmm. they're deduplicated across each of the processes. Uh, so yeah, you want to set that pm.maxchildren to a lower number uh, so that you don't keep running out of RAM. Yeah. And then separately, there's also another variable, the uh, pm max requests. And what this means is after one worker has done this many requests, close it and restart it fresh. Does that reclaim so the memory? It basically, uh, yeah, it, it gets rid of all the gunk that's built up mm -hmm. or any caching or anything like that. Uh, so setting that to a lower number uh, will mean that they'll get refreshed more often and meaning that you will basically slowly run out of memory less often <laughs> because every time it's done so many requests. You know, in particular, your uh, case is likely that, um, you know, I think the default is like 1,000 or something. 
well, your website might only get 1,000 requests a day. So if you have 10 workers, it takes 10 days until one of those actually has gotten enough that it closes down and restarts. Uh, whereas if you set it to you know, 50 or something, it maybe it gets refreshed more often. Uh, you know, there's a cost. To, it's slightly slower. You use the CPU to refresh it. So you have to tune it based on your load, but that can help a lot. Hmm. All right. So you think that uh, will... Might- basically, yeah. Um, trying to run 10 or more of these children when you only have half a gig of RAM is not going to work. Yes. Uh, Basically, your load's probably not that heavy. This is how many requests it can handle concurrently, and it will buffer them, right? So if, if you set your total limit to five as the most you can handle at once, and you get six requests that come in at once, it'll serve the first five, and as soon as one of those is done, it'll let the sixth guy through. And unless you're getting you know, so many requests a second that you that can't keep up, in which case you just need more RAM. Uh, but it's unlikely that you are getting that. So, Very good. Very good. Thank you, Alan. All right, our last email today comes in from Clemen, I think is how you say it. He says, hello there, Chris and Alan. I just got a brand new desktop PC, which I would like to use remotely via remote desktop. I need a way to power it on and off remotely. I tried Wake on LAN solutions, but so far it seems to be unreliable. I use OpenVPN to access my router, and then I send a Wake on LAN packet to the machine from the router web utility. It works sometimes. I looked at IPMI, add-in boards, and IPKVM switches, but they all seem like expensive solutions. Anything you could recommend in this regard? Ah. Uh. I don't know why your uh, wake on LAN might not be working. Yeah. Um, I cheat here. I have um, APC uh, PDUs, which basically it's uh, a power strip with its own web interface that mm-hmm. you go into and you can turn each port on and off. Um, and then you just uh, set your BIOS to you know um, automatically turn on when power comes back after a power failure. Right. And then you can do that. Yeah. Uh, there are about $600, which I'm sure is out of the range you're hoping to spend on this, but you can sometimes get them on eBay really cheap. He could also leave it on. Yeah. That would be uh, an option. Uh, part of your, the reason why you wake on land might be sticking is, I don't know, if the machine is just asleep and not actually powered off, does wake on land work properly? I don't know about power management, actually. Yeah. Huh. So that might be part of your problem, actually. You know what uh, I? You know, go into the BIOS and look at the settings and see. You know, there's a bunch of settings about Wake on LAN, and you can. I also, I would point a little suspicion. He didn't say what router he's using, but I, yeah. you know, so the way I've always done this, and it's never had a problem, is with PFSense. PFSense supports waking um, a, a workstation on the LAN up. You you yeah. go to services, wake on LAN, and you can send a magic packet to a workstation on the local LAN. And what I was going to tell him. What is before I read the email? There is I thought he was. There you also there are a lot of there are a lot of guides online to actually remotely send a wake on land packet to your machine over the right. internet. So I you find could actually that, send it yeah. from uh, but your I, machine you're sitting at through the OpenVPN and make it hit the machine. You could try that, and the ArchWiki has a, a guide on that. But I have found usually having something on the land that sends the wake up packet to the other machine on the land is the better uh, is the better option. But there is in the ArchWiki there is guides on just doing it through your OpenVPN. You could try that as well. Yep. Uh, also, depending on your use case, uh, oftentimes in your BIOS, there's an alarm clock setting where you yeah. can actually just make the computer automatically turn on at 3 o'clock in the afternoon yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Uh, uh, also, um, the different configurations, but like you could even just have like an Android device or a tablet or a f- an old phone on the LAN, on the Wi-Fi LAN. And if this, then that can be set up to automatically send a wake on LAN packet, um, which is a nice service, too, that you might be able to automate around. So, yeah. All right. Yeah. Very uh, good. And then... So yeah, you might be able to get a PDU cheap. Uh, the other option, I can land. 
Yeah, I don't know. Somebody. And then for shutting it down, obviously, if you have RDP access, you can go in, although that can be a little slow. Yeah, um, yeah. I think before I spent several hundred dollars on a remote wake-up solution, I would just consider spending that money on the power it costs to run the machine. Yeah, there is literally that. Yeah, because it's probably way cheaper. Um, but, you know. Yeah, especially modern machines, you know, they underclock themselves when they're not doing anything. Yeah, and, yeah. You know. And you turn off the monitor, which is a big power draw. You turn that off. You have CPUs idle. Yeah, like uh, when we had a power outage here a couple of weeks back, uh, I guess it was before, uh, after the last tech step, but before my trip, so I guess I hadn't mentioned it. But a big tree limb fell down and took out oh, the power really? line <laughs> to uh, a house down the street. And so they had to turn the power off to fix that house's power. Oh, okay. Because uh, I, I remember when it happened, the power went like, <laughs> it was really weird uh, because this tree fell on it. And then, uh, <laughs> then it was fine, and then it shorted out again, and then it was fine, and then it shorted out again, and then it stayed off. Oh, man. Um, and it, it stayed off from like 4 p.m. until 10 p.m. or something like that. Oh, like, or maybe longer. That's brutal. Uh, but it, it ran all my UPSs down. Yeah. Uh, but when this machine was running off its big UPS and, you know, it was, it was like, oh, we got like 15 minutes left. Turn on the monitor for 10 minutes. Oh, you have 20 minutes left. Yeah. It's like, yeah, the monitor is drawing more power than anything else. Yeah, it's got that big light in there. It's got a power. Yep. Mm-hmm. And this one's LED powered, not the fluorescent. Oh. So mm. it's... Uses less power and it still uses a lot of power. Yeah, there you have it. Uh, hopefully that will help, uh, Clement. I think that's it's an interesting idea. Yeah. I, I also, else? I mean, you yeah. can always you can get there's uh like the the APC PDU that I mentioned is like eight ports and has a web interface and has yeah. a, uh, an LED screen on the front that like measures how many how much power you're putting through it. And I so mean, on. the nice thing about that solution is you buy it once. And right. it's probably pretty much uh, probably going to work forever. You can get smaller ones. Like, hmm. I think uh, even uh, StarTech, I think, sells one that does just one machine. Uh, oh. And it's probably super cheap. Yeah. Uh, and some of them, you like you set up so you SSH into it and then just power on, power off. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, That's awesome. The problem, of, obviously, with that is just powering off a Windows machine ungracefully is usually not a great yeah. idea. Yeah. Yeah. Very true. Very but, true. you know, uh, the ABC one is mostly meant for oh, that server's frozen. Yeah. Turn the power off. Yeah, and Turn it's in a different on. state or whatever, yeah. you know. Yeah. The other like, nice thing it has, uh, which comes in very handy in my basement now, is staggered power on. So after the power went out, because the power company was fixing stuff, mm-hmm. I had this rack full of servers that all would try to turn on the instant the power came back. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, all those... <laughs> just imagine... Like 80 hard drives trying to spin up at the exact same moment. Right. It's a Power big draw. draw. Yeah. yeah. So this one turns each machine on, one machine every two minutes until they're all back on. That is really nice. You know, the router comes on immediately. Yeah. And then, you know, 60 seconds later, first machine, two minutes later, first, next machine, two minutes later, next machine, until they're all back online. But you know what's funny um, is the bank that I worked for, they obsessed, obsessed, obsessed over shutdown and boot up procedures we had to have shutdown and boot up procedures always documented always up to date and i was not as worried about it. it's like you turn on the router first get the active directory and dns up and then pretty much turn everything else on whenever you want but no they had to have everything in a certain well, order and that would have been really nice especially back then windows is terrible oh, yeah. if the client boots while well, the uh, domain controller is not up right Things go into retard mode. Yeah, and, or like the SQL server boots up before the Active Directory is available, or Exchange server starts up before Active Directory yep. is available. Like it was and a it mess. Up properly, yeah. and there's nothing managing it. Mm-hmm. So it would be really cool to just automate that staggered approach, so that because otherwise we had guys standing there with the procedures going, "Okay, now this one. Okay, now this one," and that was what we did. 
Yeah. And it was really lame. I hated it so much. So, all right. If you'd like to send in your questions to the TechSnap program, go over to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and choose TechSnap from the dropdown. Or you can email us directly, techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or put it out there for the community to answer as well, techsnap.reddit.com. And with and feedback, the, oh, go ahead. The, the community being what it is, uh, Alan's Tetris Blocks now has its own you like that? Twitter account. <laughs> Alan underscore Tetris is how it was? Alan underscore Alan, Tetris? Alan's with an S. So oh, Alan Alan's S underscore, underscore Tetris. Tetris. <laughs> uh, I think yeah. that happened during the show. You know, yeah. and we got to keep an eye on those Tetris blocks. And right now, they're uh, they're just chilling. I like that it already has two retweets and three favorites. Yeah, and it's a blurry long shot from. Yeah, from it's the like literally cropped out of the live stream. Yeah, <laughs> it's the current config too. That's great. I love it. All right, if you want to get your question in, hit the uh, contact page on on Jupiter Broadcasting. No, sorry, contact uh, emails techsnap at jupiterbroadcasting.com or the subreddit techsnap.reddit.com. Okay, now with all that done, it's time for the TechSnap roundup. Welcome to the TechSnap Roundup. Yeah, that's what that crazy music means. Now, the Roundup are stories that just didn't fit at the top of the show, but we still want to give you some links to follow up on on your own after the show. And some of these links came from our extremely powerful and intelligent subreddit over at techsnap.reddit.com. I think like this first one did. This first one is a security researcher is claiming a $24,000 bounty from Microsoft for a Hotmail hack. Look at them paying out, Alan. Yes, cross-site request forgery. But uh, the big one here was that he was actually able to take over an official uh, Hotmail account. Ah, so that's why it gets the big dollar amount? Mm-hmm. I think so. I think that makes sense, Ellen. That's good of Microsoft to actually be doing that. And that's actually why I wanted to cover the story. It's just to mention, yes, Microsoft is doing it too. All right, Alan. Next one's coming from Vice. Here is why cybersecurity experts want public source routers. Public source yeah. routers. Yeah, so this is, uh, you know, the FCC's got this proposal to, you know, kind of lock down the firmware routers, uh, the router firmwares, so that people can't, you know, set the power level higher than they're supposed to or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the security experts, 260 of them, banded together to ask the FCC to instead require that all router firmwares be open source so that uh, we can deal with the huge security problem that is currently routers. Well, I guess that does make sense. It is a huge issue. I'm not so sure I want the... Uh, the F- I, I've been watching what the FCC has been trying to do with this and it Right, so this instead would be, why don't, uh, you know, instead we require that all routers Just be certified have to be open source so that we can find and fix vulnerabilities in them. Yeah, yeah. And considering that most of them are already Linux and there's not that much special in them other than the web interface. <laughs> yeah, right, it's it true. They're like not really that. losing out on a lot. There's not like a ton of secret sauce in those things. Nope. Unless it's something that we all hate anyways, like one, bu- one button configuration or something like that. That's awful well, anyways. That's mostly standard. Yeah. If you want it to work between more than the one brand of devices. Right. That's very true. All right. So the University of Cambridge did a study and found that 87% of Android devices are insecure. They blame OEMs, lack of updates, and they say the Nexus devices are in the best shape. Not too surprising there was a data for the study was collected through the group's device analyzer app, which has been available for free on the Play Store since May 2011. The participants opted into the survey, and the university says it collected daily Android versions and build numbers from over 20,000 devices. The study then compared the version number information against 13 critical vulnerabilities, including stage fright, dating back to 2010. Each individual device was then labeled secure or insecure based on whether or not the OS version was patched against these vulnerabilities. And that's how they got to the number. That nice graph there. Yeah, look at that. 87 uh, is disgusting. Yep. Uh, It'd be more interesting if it was broke down by what the actual version numbers were. Yeah. 
uh, and OEMs. I'd like, like to shame this, the this OEMs. One, like you see, the the spikes are when a new vulnerability comes out, right? Versus uh, when people change versions or something. But you see how they never really recover. <laughs> like the yeah. spikes get shallower and shallower. Like they just don't really. Yeah, the recoveries get shorter because yes, recoveries. Yeah, the exactly. fragmentation last longer. I would love to start shaming these OEMs and get them. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, so one of the one of the strange things about the study is the choice of Android OEMs. According to IDC research, the top four Android OEMs worldwide are Samsung, Hawaii, Yaume, and Lenovo, respectively. With only Samsung in the study's FUM scores, the study omits three of the top four o- Android OEMs. So that's probably a pretty important consideration. Yeah, uh, and also it depends where you look at devices from, right? If you look at devices in the U.S., I think uh, other than you know the brand new 6P, Huawei hasn't doesn't have a, a large footprint in the U.S. Right, yet. Right. And then the other one that's that one's definitely Chinese. I don't know what their footprint is. Although in Europe it could be different. And you know Cambridge. Yeah. This is this is yeah. from Cambridge in the U.K. Right. They, uh, they point out that even though the Nexus devices were recently bumped to three years, they say that the vast majority of data shows that Android sales are not flagship devices. So that's something to consider, too. Right. People, well, most Androids people are buying are the smaller, cheaper ones, not yeah. the, the giant ones. Right, not the huge yeah. ones. N- not the ones that are on the same level as an iPhone. They're buying the cheap ones. Right. And that's why it's also un- unfair to compare some of those Android devices uh, security-wise to the iPhone. It's like, well... You know, the the device you bought for $150 is not going to have the same level of engineering and support behind it as the $700 sure. iPhone. The, the thing that drives me crazy about that is and that means that we still have computers that are network connected in people's pockets walking around with vulnerabilities in them. I mean, mm-hmm. that's the end result still. Well, yes. Uh, but what do we do? Just not sell cheap cell phones? <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. yeah. But yes, the OEM should be shamed and slapped and so on. So Kaspersky Internet Security Network Attack Blocker Design Flaw. Is this a flaw in Kaspersky? Yes. Uh, so this is a Google researcher that found uh, a flaw in Kaspersky's Network Attack Blocker. Okay. So basically it sits there and monitors packets going back and forth and uh, looks for certain uh, signatures in it and then blocks uh, communication with that IP address when it sees the signature. Right? Pretty good kind yeah. of firewall. Yeah. Um, except it does stateless packet monitoring. So it doesn't keep track, uh, to save memory or whatever, it doesn't keep track of the state of the connections. So you can send it a spoofed packet. You can send it a packet that claims to be from Windows Update and contains something that will set off its signature. And then the firewall will block Windows Update. (laughs) And then you send it one from Kaspersky's address and it will block the Kaspersky uh, downloading new definitions. And now you've basically done this level two attack against the firewall. And got it to block legitimate stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Nice. Uh, and then, uh, so the researchers told Kaspersky about it, and they started working on it. Uh, and then the researcher added, "Oh, also, don't forget, UDP and TCP are always stateless, and so you basically can't ever block those." Mm-hmm. And so it turns out the network attack blocker is probably not that useful anymore. But uh, the um, it can still do stateful TCP and find certain types of things. Hmm. Anyway, all the details are there in the posts. Uh, uh, the researcher has a series of posts, including his posted uh, Kaspersky's responses. And it was all private until recently uh, because Kaspersky deployed a fix for it. And so now he's now they can uh, talk about it. marked his ticket as open so people can view it. Yeah. All right. Well, let's talk about 220 volts of love. The USB killer is a flash drive that can fry your computer's innards in second. Look at that. It delivers 220 volt charge to the attached computer and zaps it. <laughs> yeah. And uh, remember, on the USB bus, your computer is expecting 5 volts. Yeah. 220. And 220 volts 
of AC is one thing, but 220 volts of DC is yet another thing. I'm gonna. So we have a. They have a video here on uh, on the Ars Technica site, and uh, they're plugging in the USB device, and they just totally killed the. <laughs> yikes! God, that hurts to see. Actually, yep. What a waste of a ThinkPad. That's yeah. sad. And now the computer does not turn on. Yep. Womp womp. Yeah. Boy, that's a nice way to ruin somebody's day. You know. You know where. Oh, you know where I would hate to see these show up is in schools. Yep. Students going around nuking computers or something. Yep. Oof. Oh, don't do that. That's a waste of computers. If you got an old yep. computer you want to throw out, give it to somebody else. Don't nuke it. I mean, that's yep. hard. That's hard. Okay, Alan, our next one comes from the freebsd.org site. What is this? Yes. Uh, so, this is the new hashing algorithms arriving for ZFS. Ooh, the new not hashing is here. Uh, not completely merged yet, but uh, this is basically a bunch of new features in ZFS. Uh, the first one is the um, uh, adding SHA... 512 truncated to 256 as a hashing algorithm. So in the ZFS on disk format, there's only room for 256-bit uh, hashing algorithm. Okay. But on 64-bit processors, it's actually 50% faster to calculate the SHA-512 than it is to calculate the SHA-256. Mm -hmm. uh, so by calculating the SHA-512 of it and then truncating it to half the size, you get uh, a stronger, well, about the same level of hash, right? 256 bits instead of 512. Uh, but you can calculate it 50% faster. Uh, and so that, uh, basically, if you have to use SHA for your hashing, then you can use SHA-512 slash 256 now, hmm. uh, and you'll get 50% better performance and the same level of protection. Now, uh, we have another link here. Well, uh, no, no, done. And oh. then they added two new uh, hashing algorithms. Uh, one is Skeen. Uh, which is about 80% faster than SHA-256. Nice. So it's still a little bit faster than the SHA-512, the new one. Uh, and the other thing is this implementation, uh, implementation also utilizes the new salted checksum functionality built into ZFS. This means that the checksum is preceded with a secret 256-bit random key that is then stored in the pool before being fed uh, the data that it wants that, from the block to be checksummed. Uh, thus produces checksums that are unique to a specific pool uh, rather than unique hmm. to the data. Yeah. And this prevents hash collision attacks on systems with dedupe. Oh. So if you're using the dedupe for, say, running other people's VMs, they can't now uh, attack the dedupe and be able to read other people's data by finding hash collisions or something like that. Now, CPU load-wise, what's this going to be for, for servers? Much in the way uh, of extra? So, so uh, Skeen is 80% faster than SHA-256, mm. which is what you would use for dedupe. Mm -hmm. uh, so for dedupe, this will be better. Okay. Um, now, I think Fletcher 4 is still the fastest, but it's um, not as strong. And so you definitely don't want to use it for de uh, if you're deduping. Okay. Uh, then, but uh, the last new one they have is Eden, uh, E-D-O-N-R, uh, which is 380 50% faster than SHA-256. Um, and both uh, Skeen and Eden-R were um, options in the SHA-3 competition. So they weren't the ones that were picked to become SHA-3, uh, but they have interesting attributes and have gone through the process, and we know quite a bit about them, so they were picked. Uh, so Eden-R is a very high-performance hashing algorithm that was part of NIST's SHA-3 competition. It provides extremely high hash performance, like I said, 350% faster than SHA-256. hey -oh. But was not selected because of its unsuitability as a general purpose secure hashing algorithm. Hmm. Uh, but on ZFS, this will implement the new salted checksumming functionality, uh, but means that uh, the, you know, the checksum will be preceded. 
Uh, but they say that um, y it shouldn't be used uh, with dedupe currently. Mm. Uh, and mm. so um, unless you enable the verification option, so if you, uh, in that case, when uh, a match is found with the dedupe, it will double check that the two bits of data are actually the same and that it wasn't a hash collision and deal with it. Okay. Uh, so Eden R is more likely to have a hash collision, but is extremely fast. So uh, it's an interesting option to add as well. Hmm. Uh, now, what's the second one? Because this is sort of... Yes. Uh, so then the second one is the implementation of resumable replication I for ZFS. So. Mm, cool. I've been waiting for this yeah. for like a year and a half. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, 10 hours ago, it was committed to FreeBSD. Yay. So when does that actually, when do you think that'll actually mean you'll see it in production? Roughly, uh, yeah. Well, I, I will start using it tomorrow. Right away, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right so if you, if you build your own version of FreeBSD-current, yeah. it's, it's there now. Yeah, right. Um, the next weekly snapshot of that will come out next week, mm. uh, and it will be part of FreeBSD 10.3, which will uh, freeze in January and ship in probably February or March. All right. Um, so basically, uh, when you do ZFS receive, you add the minus S flag, yeah. and that tells it, hey, if uh, you only get if a partial you're replicating state. and it, if, if if things break, yeah. keep keep the broken one instead of deleting it, which right. is what it normally did. Yeah. Uh, and then you basically do ZFS get uh, receive resume token uh, from the data set you were replicating, and it gives you this string, and then you just feed that to ZFS send minus T, that string, and it will pick up where it left off and resume. That's huge, especially when you're dealing with really large sets of data. Yes, like sending <laughs> 400 gigabytes over yes. the internet. Do you do that? That's yes. nuts. <laughs> All the time. You're going to uh, love that feature, More Alan. importantly, I have a new data set to send, and it's 14 terabytes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Yeah, that's so resumable. Zoom, yes, Ooh. yeah. That. I will, I will take that. Yeah, hallelujah. Buckets and buckets of that. Yeah, no kidding. Oh uh, wow. Speaking of buckets of buckets, look at this: buckets and buckets of money. Dell to buy EMC in a sixty-seven billion dollar deal, being called the largest tech deal in history. Yep. Uh, and and word on the street is, Dell, the, actually the uh, holding company that is now privately owns Dell was shopping the hell out of their PC division right up till this announcement. Uh, they approached HP, they approached Lenovo, and a bunch of other companies to see if they were interested in buying Dell's PC division. Sounds like Dell is planning to make a switch to more of a back-end infrastructure. Server type thing, yeah. Yeah, $67 uh, billion So the now. interesting thing here is that EMC owns 70 or 80% of VMware. VMware. Uh, and so the way they've actually, uh, so VMware is actually going to stay a separate company. Mm -hmm. uh, and the way they're structuring the deal is if you had stock in EMC, you will get paid 70% cash and 30% of what's called a tracing stock that will follow the performance of the VMware stock. Hmm. Tracing stock. Yeah. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's probably a good buy for Dell, I, I think. Yeah. Um, there's obviously a lot, quite a few questions about it. I know a bunch of people that work at EMC Isilon, uh, which is a... Uh, uh, they make FreeBSD storage products for yeah. EMC, yeah. and uh, you know they were talking to people that work at Dell for on FreeBSD, and like, so what's it like working at Dell? Like, uh, yeah. how restricted is the internet while you're at the shop, and so on? All the important questions, yeah. of course. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it's apparently Isilon uh, or EMC is you know does a man in the middle SSH or SSL proxy and stuff really on the internet connection, and, and Dell's less of that. So that's nice. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with this. Uh, but yeah, that just uh, lowers the number of storage options you have now. Yeah, yeah, it does. Uh, but you know, 
maybe it's what they had to do because ZFS is eating their lunch. Mm. Although for Isilon, uh, Isilon basically is the one thing that ZFS can't do, which is a, a clustered file system. Oh, mm-hmm. okay. All right, Al, next story. The Web Authentication's arms race, a tale of two security experts. Yes. So this is basically a, a back and forth across uh, between an attacker and a defender. Uh, and it's just a really, it, it goes back all the way back to like the 90s, but it's very interesting. So first you have the defender. You know, users will enter a username and password, and I will give them an authenticated cookie f- uh, f- for me to trust them in the future. Mm-hmm. Then the attacker goes, well, I will watch your network traffic and steal those usernames and passwords as they come down the wire. <laughs> so the defender will change the form element on the web page to submit over HTTPS uh, so that the passwords will be sent encrypted. But the rest of the page will still be decrypted. Well, the attacker will do a man in the middle on the attack and uh, insert some JavaScript that will send the password to my server in the background or modify the page so that it doesn't submit over HTTPS. Mm-hmm. So the defender will then serve the login page itself over HTTPS so it can't be modified. So the attacker will then watch the network traffic and steal the resulting authentication cookie and then impersonate the user knowing that without having knowing the password. Oh, man. So the defender will serve his entire site over HTTPS and mark this cookie as secure so it will never be sent in the clear. And then the attacker won't be able to see any cookies. So now the attacker will run a man in the middle against the entire site and just always serve it without HTTPS and just, you know, downgrade attack uh, and then intercept all the traffic. So the defender will start using the HSTS, right, the strict transport security thing, mm-hmm. uh, to tell the browser to always refuse things that are not HTTPS. Uh, and the attacker will find or compromise some shady certificate authority and get his own certificate for your domain name and then run his man in the middle attack. So the defender will use the public key pins header to tell browsers to refuse to load my site with any certificate that's not the, the real one. <laughs> so you know, at this point... There's no reasonable way for the attacker to run a man-in-the-middle attack without first compromising the user's browser. So the attacker instead makes a fake login page and uses phishing to get yes, the user's password. It sounds right. So the defender adds two-factor authentication, making your stolen password useless without a reusable second factor. So the attacker will then change his phishing page to request a second factor as well, and then immediately log in using that second factor uh, while it's still valid, because they're usually only valid for like 30 seconds or 60 seconds. So then the defender will replace his SMS or um, you know, one-time password with a private key on a tamper-resistant hardware device, rendering a man-in-the-middle attack completely un- unable to use the stolen credentials because uh, the challenge is sent to the private key and all the encryption happens on the device. This also prevents phishing attacks since the browser will uh, incorporate the site origin into the original signed uh, by the private key and that'll prevent those shenanigans. So now, uh, you know, Private keys, such as U2F devices, are unfishable credentials and now completely impossible for anyone who does not have physical possession of the private key to authenticate. Note that this uh, assumes that the hardware device is trusted. If the attacker can swap the device for a device with a known private key, all bets are off. Also note that you should probably use a password in conjunction with your hardware device to prevent an attacker from simply stealing the device and not needing to know a password. So now the attacker will trick the user into installing a malicious browser extension or desktop application that will then read the authentication cookie from the browser's cookie jar. So the defender will use channel-bound cookies, linking my authenticated cookie to a private key using a generated SSL connection. (laughs) Uh, And then the attacker will just change his malicious code to exfiltrate the private key as well as the authentication cookie. So the attacker uh, will hope that the user's browser signs in HTTP connections with a hardware-based private key preventing the attacker from cloning the SSL session without access to the private key. 
Uh, so the attacker will change his malicious code to run a reverse proxy through the user's yeah, browser, yeah. sending my arbitrary request through the same token-bound SSL session. Right. Uh, so the uh, defender will then encourage users to use a platform or browser that does not allow possession or extension of interact with the security context. So mm-hmm. they down to like Krebs's boot off a, a fix uh, unwritable yeah. uh, live CD yeah. <laughs> to do your banking. Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, it's just yeah. every and step. It, it goes into more and more detail. And then in the end, you have the ultimate weakness, which is the forgot password function. <laughs> yes. No kidding. Yeah, that end users and forgetting passwords are and using the same passwords are uh, are always a mess. That's funny, Alan. It's very true. And it has very much that very much captured the evolution of it. It's kind of funny. <laughs> Uh, all right, so I, you and I were talking about this one on the pre-show today, and I was just shaking my head. Microsoft is now using the Windows 10 Start menu to display where essentially ads. Yep. Just gross. And uh, recommended or suggested apps that yeah. you might want to buy from the Windows App Store. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's not like you know big flashy funny, ads, but you know, like iOS is moving towards actually blocking ads and yeah. so on. Yeah. And Windows is now injecting ads into your desktop. Yeah. If if you didn't pay for Windows, maybe. But really, I paid you for this, and you're going to throw ads at me? Yeah. Now, here's the good news. If you go to settings in your start menu, uh, personalization, start, and then there's a checkbox, like occasionally show suggestions and start, uh, says. And you can turn it off, I guess. But yeah. it's it's just low class. I think that's why yeah, people are reacting it, to it. What makes me mad is also uh, when Skype ended the uh, paying 5 or $10 a month for multi-way video, uh, it meant that I no longer I, I get ads again now. Yes, it's like I, I would happily pay you the five dollars a yeah. month again to yeah. get rid of the ads. <laughs> really crappy ads too. Really, really crappy ads too. Yes, That's, they're always like terrible. Yeah, it's really funny. Speaking of Windows, statically linking a Windows kernel driver as an ELF. Yes. So this was a, a challenge that FireEye uh, puts out every year, and uh, they have a bunch of different challenges. And this was the hardest one from this year, and uh, researcher. Wow! Took look a at hack that! At it. Look at that visualization. Mm-hmm. That is so neat. Yep. Huh. There you go. And then oh, they go through the whole Slightly thing. over thing. my head, actually. They go through the whole thing here. This is a great This is a great write-up. Check it out, you guys. We have it linked in the show notes. Look at that. Huh. That is, that's really cool. I think we got another one from FireEye coming up. Yeah, here it is right here. Uh, so another mobile malicious adware is infecting over in 20 countries. Now, we've talked about these ad networks before. That's kind of why this grabbed my attention, Alan, is. <laughs> I like that it apparently never affected Canada. Yeah, Canada's totally not lit up at all on the map, is it? <laughs> it's funny. Yeah. I'm guessing FireEye just doesn't have a, a probe P- in Canada Yeah, perhaps, or perhaps. But you know what? Guess what? It's coming in through these damn apps that have ads in them. Mm-hmm. And then they infect the ads in the app. So, like, Talking oh, Tom is... What? A, Kiss Browser? Why would anybody download I don't, that? I don't know that one. But Talking Privacy Tom... Privacy Lock? Calculator's pretty obvious. It's also cleverly using, I think, the uh, one of the iOS icons for Calculator. So you can see how mm-hmm. people might grab that one. Um, privacy lock, that makes sense. Talking Tom 3, my kids have wanted to install Talking Tom before. It's like a little kitty that you can interact with. That's just the worst. And yeah, and then they would infect them. Uh, they would install the adware, and then uh, they could get remote control applications even installed on the devices. Yep. Ads are, uh, display ads are yep. just... There's a reason why uh, you know Apple decided to try to start blocking these, and it wasn't because they wanted to screw other people's business models. Maybe Google's a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, this is an awesome page. I don't know what the hell I'm looking at. It, it, this is... Oh, what? scroll down. Oh, there it is. Okay. 
it's just a list of machines. So uh, this is a close look at, what is it? A close look at an operating botnet. Oh, very yeah. cool. So a researcher uh, set up a digital ocean droplet and purposely installed a version of Bash that has the shell shock vulnerability. Right. Basically set up a honeypot with the shell shock vulnerability and watched to see what people did to it. Come at me, bro. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and uh, from it, he was able to then learn about the botnet that attacked yeah. the machine and, and actually you know, get insider info on the botnet. By he even it. tracks it down to the IRC room that's controlling the botnet, and yep. it goes in there and watches the commands. And then look at that. He got it. He got, that's what that is. That top image is a screenshot of 977 connected, quote-unquote, users in six different channels. Yep. Wow. Slick. And he's using TCB dump at the same time while he's in there. That is so cool. Huh, really nice write-up linked to that in the show notes, too. Creative use of a DigitalOcean droplet. Yeah, for sure, yeah. Now, I didn't. I actually did not know about this, but I guess Apple has announced a $3 million... No, it's not Apple. Oh, uh, okay. A separate company is offering the money, which is even less making sense. Yeah, yeah, okay. I was like, I hadn't heard about this. So, yeah. uh, some other company is paying for people to find bugs in Apple products? Yes, uh, it's uh, Zerodium. Okay, yeah, yeah, it says here... Uh, the security firm Zerodium has put a huge bounty for organizations and individuals who can jailbreak into the latest system. A total of three million uh, to get into iOS nine. They call it the million dollar iOS nine bug bounty. Three million dollars to figure out how to jailbreak it. I didn't realize there was so much money behind jailbreaking iOS devices. But well, this is uh, iOS eight and like eight four one or whatever is fairly easily jailbroken. But uh, in nine, they they switched to what they're calling this rootless yes, setup. Yep. And they're saying it'll be, you know, impossible. And well. I think it's essentially mandatory access controls, but I'm not sure. Essentially, like the root, there's like certain things the root user can't even do now, like install kernel modules and things like that. Right. So same this with is, uh, El Capitan on the desktop. Yeah. So uh, eligibility for the three million dollars. Uh, an eligible submission must include a full chain of unknown, unpublished, and unreported vulnerabilities or exploits, Damn. aka zero days, yeah. which are combined to bypass all iOS nine exploit mitigations, including ASLR, sandboxing, rootless, code signing, and boot chain. The exploit slash jailbreak must lead to uh, and allow remote, privileged, and persistent installation of an arbitrary app like Cydia uh, on a fully updated iOS nine device. The initial attack vector must be either a web page targeting the mobile browser, like mobile Safari or Google Chrome, in its default configuration, a web page targeting any application reachable through the browser, mm. or a text message or MMS message uh, delivered through a multimedia file. Huh. The whole exploitation jailbreak process must be achievable remotely, reliably, silently, and without requiring any user interaction except visiting a web page or uh, re reading an SMS or MMS message. Uh, attack vectors such as physical access, Bluetooth, NFC, and, or baseband are not eligible for the million-dollar bounty. Too complicated for average users. Uh, zero, uh, well, no, those ones are actually easier to attack, right? If you have physical access to the phone, it's much harder to No, what I mean is uh, one of the things they try to do for jailbreaking is they try to make it like click on this link in your web browser and your phone's jailbroken. Right. Like they try to make it a really easy process. Right. Uh, Zerodium may, in its sole discretion, make a distinct offer uh, to acquire such attack vectors. So while... The, you know, a physical attack or a Bluetooth attack against the iPhone won't get you the $3 million. They might pay you for it anyway, so please send it to them. <laughs> the exploit jailbreak must support and work reliably with the following devices in 32-bit or 64-bit where applicable. iPhone 6S, 6S Plus, 6 or 6 Plus, 5, 5C or 5S. Damn. iPad Air 2, iPad Air, iPad 4th Gen, iPad 3rd Gen, iPad Mini 4 or iPad Mini 2. So, you know, the uh, the... 
it seems like if you're willing to pay somebody $3 million, that's trackable somehow. And it seems like Apple could go after them legally for this. But I don't I know. See, uh, partial incomplete exploits of Joe Banks will not be eligible for the million-dollar bounty. However, Zerodium may, at its sole discretion, make a distinct offer to acquire such partial exploits. You know, I think the, the, reason the way they keep saying acquire the exploits seems like they may not necessarily be interested in fixing these. Oh, no, 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 of course not. No, 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 no. Yeah. No, Premium is, exploit acquisition program. This is all about making jailbreak possible because there's a huge industry outside the U.S. Well, selling I think jailbroken these phones. particular guys are actually uh, after selling the exploit or something. Maybe. I mean, there's probably they make. Uh, what's to say? Zerodium is a privately held and venture-backed startup founded by uh, cybersecurity veterans and unparalleled experience. Blah blah blah. blah venture-backed. That's yeah. pretty risky for a venture-backed thing. Well, uh, th that's where they got the three million dollars to give away. Yeah. Right. Uh, we created Zerodium to build a global community of talented and independent security researchers working together to provide the most up-to-date source of cybersecurity research and capabilities. To do so, Zerodium uh, pays high rewards to researchers for their zero-day discoveries, as we believe this is the only effective way to capture high-end security research from all over the globe. There you have it. Um, anyway. Somebody's going to make a lot of money. Probably. It's interesting that they're having more trouble with iOS 9. Uh, all right, you ready to talk about our last link in the roundup? Constructing yep. a cross-site vector using no letters. Yes. So this is a cross-site scripting injection, just a bit of JavaScript. But the interesting, so this was basically a challenge that went out. It's like, make some, write some JavaScript that will run alert one, which right. basically pop up a, a thing in your browser with the number one on it. But you can't use any letters in the alphabet. <laughs> it's adorable. <laughs> uh, so they basically found that you know if you take an empty string and then access it via the substring, you can do things like oh if you put exclamation mark one that's false. Uh, by adding a string to it, you convert it to a string, and then you can take uh, you know the sub context of it uh, with three, and that'll give you the fourth letter. So now you have the letter S, right? Mm, uh, mm -hmm. And then if you do not zero, that might be true. And then subscript two will give you the third letter. And, you know, the third letter of true is U. And then, you know, if you take uh, the index two of the word object, you get the letter B, uh, which now you've spelled out the word sub. And then they continue on from there and basically show how you can write out alert one, write function alert one uh, without having to use any letters. That's pretty nerdy, Alan. That's pretty yep. nerdy. Chris, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's why it's in our show, after all. Yep. Yeah. All right, that brings us to the end of the roundup this week. And uh, you can submit stories by going to techsnap.reddit.com. Don't forget, we also want your emails by going to jupiterbroadcasting.com slash contact and choosing TechSnap from the dropdown. And I'll also mention we have RSS feeds, so you can get this show automatically every single week. And copious show notes, links to all the stuff we talked about in the show notes, just go find episode 236 of the TechSnap program and scroll down past the download links and you'll see everything. Anything else we need to cover, Alan? Are we all good? No, I think we're good. All right, well, then I just invite you to join us live over at jblive.tv. We do this show at 1 p.m. Pacific, which is? 4 p.m. Eastern, 2000 GTC. Boom. Also, jblive.info for the audio-only version. If you're on the go or sitting at a desk where they don't want you streaming video, maybe you're sit working at EMC. I don't know. Not going to judge. But you can listen to the audio stream at jblive.info. we got a high bit rate and a low bit rate for you. All right, everybody, well, thank you so much for tuning in this week's episode of TechSnap, and we'll see you right back here next week.